Jason. My special, special boy. Do you know what your gift is? No matter what they do to you, you cannot die. You can never die. You've just been sleeping, honey. But now, the time has come to wake up. Mommy has something she wants you to do. I need you to go to Elm Street. The children have been very bad on Elm Street. Rise up, Jason! Your work isn't finished! Hear my voice and live again! Make them remember me, Jason! Make them remember what fear tastes like! I have been away from my children for far too long. Hello and welcome to Binge Movies, episode 107. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks and eliminates movies to determine which ones are worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. Joining me today is a nightmare on any street. <laughs> I, of course, am talking about Paul from the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews. Paul, Paulcast. Podcast. <laughs> Paulcast. Paulcast. Yeah, uh, if you ever start a network, you should call it Podcast, and please sign me up and get me some sponsors, Paul. <laughs> I will. You'll be number one on the uh, recruitment. I want to ride your coat. <laughs> I want to ride your coattails into success and fame and fortune. Oh yeah. Um, this is a sort of a spiritual sequel. <laughs> we have you on a bunch. Uh, it's always special. It's a pleasure. It's always well. It's always yeah. <laughs> it's not quite okay. always a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. It's it's always my pleasure to have you, and uh, a lot of people like it when you're on. I'm sure you've gotten great feedback from when you've been on. Thank you, those very kind, Thank very, you. very forgiving people. <laughs> you're, the people see you as a highlight, as do I. And this is kind of a spiritual sequel, not to our Killer Kids episode, <laughs> no. not to our horrible Asian horror remake <laughs> episode, not to, uh, what's another one that we did? Under Overlooked Movies of 2012. Uh, AKA, AKA the one episode where <laughs> there were good films. <laughs> <laughs> not to last movie standing. No, not to what the fuck movies. This isn't a spiritual sequel to when we talked about the apple and oh, uh, uh, going going bananas. <laughs> going bananas. <laughs> of which you are now synonymous. <laughs> I. This is a spiritual sequel. To something we did last spooky season for last Halloween, where we binged uh, all of the Halloween movies, uh, other than, I think, the remake. So we went through them all. It was a very long episode. <laughs> I will have you know that that is uh, instantly, instantly, when that came out, that became one of our top 10 most downloaded episodes in the history of the show. Wow. That that speaks to the uh, the passionate fan base behind Halloween and and how it's resurged. I think in current times, thanks to the the direct sequel that you know, David Gordon Green and what's his name, Danny McBride made. So and Gats obviously coming again, but uh, no such thing in this particular world. 
Nope. It, here's the other thing. It charted not only in Australia, which makes sense. Uh, it hit like the top 10 in Australia for film and TV podcasts. Ooh. But did it, the same thing in Great Britain. It did the same thing in Spain. It did... It got, I don't know, top 100 in the United States, but nobody in the United States even listens to us, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're an international <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we are, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Like, yeah. So, um, but that was a, a huge success. So, of course, uh, I had to put an immediate sequel into production. So, last <laughs> year, this time, I was like, I will see you here this time next year, and we're going to do a Nightmare on Elm Street. And you Woo. said, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> But you're here. I am. I We're am. doing it. And I'm already calculating. I know it's a bit early to be doing this. I'm already calculating what's going to happen in 2022. Uh, and I think you know and that. And the answer. franchise that we might tackle. <laughs> it's prank week at Glazier College. And the frat boys are out for blood. You won't get away with those foolish pranks this year. But what these party animals don't realize, I now command you to appear. Because they've got three new pledges from hell. Let's take it to a round, schmucks. Now, the ghoulies are about to learn what higher education is all about. Brewskies. I'll just take one. Babes. Uh-oh. So, what's your major? And partying hardy. They drink our brews. This is war. They may flunk out on manners, but they get an A in mayhem. Ghoulies 3. Ghoulies go to college. They put the animal back in the house. Uh, what's your history with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, Freddy Krueger? Uh, I guess my main question is, I know that he was pop culture zeitgeist of the 80s into the early 90s. Mm -hmm. I saw the commercials for the 1-900 numbers. I saw the terrible Freddy's Nightmares, Twilight Zone <laughs> wannabe TV show. Yep. Um, I know the records that the, he put out. I know the novelty songs and all of the paraphernalia in children's pajamas, which is very disturbing <laughs> given his backstory. Did any of that translate to Australia? Did you have the merchandising blitz of Freddy Krueger over there? I don't think or so. Or were these like Australian video nasties? Like, how did this work? Yeah, it definitely wasn't across the, the popular culture zeitgeist, like you just described it there for the States. It was big, don't get me wrong, and it was big enough that the last film that we're going to cover, no, the second to last film we're going to cover today, I went to the theatres to see. So it was probably, mm. and I was old enough, therefore, to, to be able to, in 1991, get into that because it wasn't an R-rated film here in, in Australia. It was only rated M. We'll get to that later in, in today's recording. But this was oh this was a film which was always on my radar once I got into horror, which was when I was only about 10 or 11 years old. And I remember my mum was constantly saying, no, you cannot watch this movie. 
a nightmare on Elm Street. It will give you yeah. bad nightmares. You will be freaked out by it. No. Like, I was allowed to watch Jaws and I was allowed to watch some other softer, mm-hmm. so to speak, horrors, but Nightmare on Elm Street was banned until my mum was out playing sports for a day and my dad took me to the video <laughs> store and I said, Dad, can I have this one, you know, as about 12, maybe 13-year-old? And Dad said, sure, whatever, not looking at it. Put game, we hired it. I went home and watched it. I didn't have nightmares. <laughs> it helped solidify my love of horror. And so I was a dead keen, interested in everyone that came out afterwards. I remember watching the second one repeatedly, time and again, just because it was an R-rated horror film and my mum had gone after she lost her shit. Oh, whatever. You can watch whatever then. And so I was allowed to hire from that moment on whatever I wanted. <laughs> so she just gave in, yep. basically. She was like, now that you've seen the filth, you might as well just just The damn wall is open. Clearly, <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't murdered any of your classmates nor had night terrors for... So whatever, you, you're obviously able to handle it. Obviously, anyone who's listened to this podcast for an extended period of time, I frequently mention my father, right? Big influence uh, uh, on me and film fandom. And, you know, it just... You've heard the story, so I won't repeat it. But Absolutely. He was a big time horror movie fan. Nice. And he watched every type of horror movie. I mean, there wasn't a weekend where we didn't have at least two or three full moon Charles Band horror movie <laughs> releases, along with the premiere stuff, along with the, the top shelf stuff. So he had everything in the house, or he was renting everything or hiring, as you would say. Every video, he was recording movies, and it was all genres, all types. But he was a big horror fan, big sci fi, big horror fan. So uh, very frequently, my mom was, would shuttle, shuffle me out of the room <laughs> to go play with something else while dad watched horror movies or go to bed So because right. my mom didn't like horror movies at all. They freaked her out. So it was like, okay, we're, we're going to go do something else while dad watches horror movies, which, of course, as a kid, only made them that much more intriguing. Yep. I was probably no more. I was not even grade school age. The original A Nightmare on Elm Street is on the TV. I could only imagine this was a broadcast television showing of it. Um, or maybe it was showing like on a Cinemax or something. But I can't, I, I know we didn't have the series or we, he had never recorded the series on tape. I don't have any recollection of that. So I know, I, I highly doubt he rented it because this would have been years after the 1984 yep. or 1985 or whenever it came out. So this is probably like 1987, 1988. I'm pre right around grade school age, somewhere in there. And this is a vivid memory. I'm laying on the couch. The movie's going on. And now it's laughable. But at the time when Tina, who we think is the protagonist, and we'll get into it Mm -hmm. in the review, goes off into the alleyway and Freddy starts walking down and the arms start extending out. I, the voice, the laugh, the image of that, this sort of short, disgusting, like all in shadow, weird, surrealistic, stretched out arms emblazoned itself in me to the point that I didn't make it past that point in the movie. Right. It would be yep. years before I'd watched the original ever again. And I had nightmares for about four years. There after you are. Almost every night about Freddy Krueger. You were too young. Until I... I I till I, yeah, I learned about lucid dreaming, and this is a hundred percent true. And in one of my dreams, I was like, "This is a dream. I can control what happens here." And I dreamed a bazooka because <laughs> he was chasing me through the halls of my school, 
and I dreamed a bazooka, and I blew him up, and I never dreamed about him again. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> <laughs> so well I say all that to say, having revisited these movies, I don't know if there's any franchise of movies other than another certain horror franchise that that we have yet to cover. You and I, ghoulies, they'll get you in the end. Uh, that I have seen more than Nightmare on Elm Street. Ooh. I know these movies, like, they're well-worn. They are just such an ingrained part of who I am, including the shitty ones, and we'll debate which ones are the <laughs> shitty ones. <laughs> that revisiting them, there are no real scares left for me. There are, it's not, uh, uh, there's no, there are eerie and creepy moments in, in two of the films in particular. I think some of these movies are, are effective. I, I enjoy the set pieces. I'm sort of hedging because here's what I want to say. If this works like Halloween worked, then we're going to have a lot of people who are showing up to binge movies just because it's spooky season. It's a nightmare down the street. Yeah. And we welcome you here, right? We welcome, welcome you to binge movies. Check out the countdown movie and TV reviews podcast where Paul's a host with his buddy, Wayne. They've been doing it for a lot of years. They're a great podcast. We appreciate you. We're probably going to say some critical shit about this franchise, but you have to know that going into it, that Paul and I, uh, uh, even though we're different ages, both in a way grew up with these movies yep. and have seen them quite a bit. And uh, we're if we're going to rib them or if we're going to critique them, it's I think it's coming mostly from a place of love and respect for the most part. Some of these, uh, not so much. There's one film in this series which I think is one of the absolute worst films of all time. And that one I'm not going to give <laughs> any, you know, if you're, yeah, if yeah, you're here yeah. to say that film's a good film, I'm sorry, you can hate me for the rest of your life, but because that is just factually, not even opinion, subjectively wrong. Uh, but I think the franchise itself as an overall is, as you've already alluded, uh, it is game changing. It was the most horrifying entry into the, you know, beyond the Jasons, beyond the Michaels. This was the one, and I think we'll talk about it probably with the first film if we don't now already. This is the one, the kind of horror that can affect anybody at any time. You are vulnerable yep. when you sleep, and everybody has to sleep. Let's start with the bona fide classic, 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street, which currently has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet. But something is coming to get them. Nightmare on Elm Street. No! No! She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails, no one will survive. Help me, please! Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, rated R. A Nightmare on Elm Street was written and directed by the late, great Wes Craven. It's the triumphant return of Lynn Shay, the sister <laughs> of Bob Shay, who ran New Line uh, uh, Studios or New Line Cinema. And so Lynn Shay showed up in every single mm -hmm. movie that New Line ever put out. Uh, and then eventually, when she was like 79 years old, they gave her her own franchise. Is she, what is she, Insidious? Which one is she? Yeah, Insidious. Where she shows up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So now she's like a megastar, but she was. Always showing up. Last time we saw her was in Something About Mary, another New Line release. <laughs> uh, this movie was released November 9th, 1984, on a budget of only a million dollars. That's amazing. This thing made $57 million in its original run. Right? I mean, and I, let's just stop. Before we even get to the synopsis stuff, 
okay, there's there's some stuff now that doesn't play. The arms. Yep. And you can see the, the duct tape and the spit and the glue that held this thing together in certain shots. And in other shots, other things that Wes Craven was able to do, this thing still is, uh, would pass, some of the stuff would pass yep. today. 100% agree. And all for a million dollars. It's just unreal. Okay. So. The wages of paternal sins are paid in dreams and death by Ohio teens. A murdered child murderer murders more kids of the people who murdered him after his death by murdering them in their dreams. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, straight off the top, how important to this film and the franchise is the eerie score and the nursery rhyme style Beyond just the one, two, Freddy's coming for you, but you alluded to it earlier. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. Like just the, just a couple notes on the piano. How important is it to say the tone of this? Because that music to this day is fucking creepy. I think it's fantastic. And you're right. It, the motif spreads through all of the films, all the way through to yeah. the seventh, if you want to call it that. So they're smart in that way. Much like that Jason or the Friday 13th sound. Ch -ch -ch or yep, yeah, or yeah. even the Halloween kind of ding, 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 which is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. But this is just very simple. It's just what I did before and you just did there. And yet, ask any horror fan where that comes from and they'll instantly know it's iconic. There's something like ethereal. There, there, what's amazing about it is it's a couple notes, but somehow those notes bring together the, the theme. Here, here, okay. Here's what I want to say. This is a slasher movie. This is a mm -hmm. gore movie. Yep. It has all that sort of stuff in it. But because of the surrealism, and I think the intellect of Wes Craven, he somehow elevated what could have been just a schlock idea of a dream boogeyman who's going to come again. This could have just been a boogeyman movie. It isn't. There's something that was a lot more uh, uh, primal themes and fears he's tapping into our collective subconscious yep and he's 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 transposing his fears and uh, his childhood bully and a creepy guy he saw at his window one time and then he looked back out the window and the guy was still there who was wearing the fedora and the dirty sweater which was the basis he's he's taking these primitive scarring psychological psychological trauma and fear of his childhood a random story he read about, I think, Cambodian immigrants who were running from the Khmer Rouge, who were dying of fright in their sleep once they were in America, and they were finding coffee pots in these kids' uh, bedrooms and their closets. And he takes all of this stuff, and he creates this movie where the theme, the visuals, the ideas, the, the everything comes together as it's supposed to in a good movie. And yet the score, aesthetically perfectly fits all of that it's dreamlike it's ethereal it's haunting it has a weird feeling of innocent to it but 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 menace at the same mm -hmm. time and it's inescapable it's an earworm it it it, it the score itself is like freddie and they, he doesn't even have to be on screen he doesn't have to be quipping nothing over the top surreal has to be happening you just put a vulnerable person in the a well-framed shot with a little bit of fog in the middle of the night and you play those notes and it's terrifying. And this movie proves it. And this, uh, this is, this is a masterclass 
of low budget horror to this day. And I, I know it's like I'm basically just telling you that I love this movie, but in revisiting it, having seen it so many times, it was fresh all over again, which says something for a movie that's damn near 40 years old. Wow, that's uh, quite the praise coming from from Jason. So <laughs> just thinking about the way you score things, that means it's almost going to get all the way to seven and a half out of ten. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, Am I wrong, though? No, no, you're not. And I think this film is, I'll use the word iconic again and again, probably describing it because there is something about it. It's all the things you said. It's all those little elements that you said. But it's also some of the nightmarish kind of concepts in practice. like. That thing coming out of the the latex wall, okay, but it looks like someone's face pressed against the wall. That's nightmare fuel. That that effect has never been done better. No, it's it's incredible. Yeah, The Tina's death scene is one of the best horror deaths in cinema history. Full stop, bam, there. Absolutely. And as you said, we were led to believe she was the main character, something that very rarely had been done. And certainly not in a $1 million budget horror film. You had your final girl. And you stuck with her yep. and everyone else was just basically cannon fodder around her. Not in this movie. Yep. Right, so that's, that's a huge, huge The only other that. movie that did that was Psycho. Yeah. One of the all-time great horror movies. And so, yeah, you, you could label this. Well, this is just, you know, a uh, dead teenager uh, slasher movie, whatever, whatever. In, in an era that was overloaded with slasher movies. There was 10 slasher movies in the theater every week, at least in the United <laughs> States. For real, you know, and it was just that there was, I don't think there was ever more movies of a certain genre. People are sick of superhero movies. Go back to the fucking 80s because it was nothing but horror movies or slasher movies or movies that were repurposed and falsely marketed as horror movies or slasher movies because that's what people were going to see. Mm -hmm. And yet in this, this, this is coming in the middle towards the end of the slasher craze. And it completely almost reinvents the subgenre. It revitalizes it, so we got a whole another shit ton yeah. of them. Yep. Just from the opening of uh, the, the 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 dirty workshop and Fred Krueger, who we don't even know, but the dirty nasty sweater and the making of the glove and the putting of the glove on and the title card basically attacking you and. From that into the surreal dream world of Tina, like you said, who we think is the protagonist, um, it, it it it's oh god, it's just <laughs> like it 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 sets everything up. That's what a movie's supposed to do. Your first shot, your is supposed to establish everything you need to know tonally and visually without saying a goddamn thing. And so many movies today have to spell out absolutely everything for you. And this is a movie that piecemeals the information, but not in a frustrating way. This is a movie that is showing you, even through dreams and even through surrealism and even through these bizarre things that happen in this movie, it's showing you what the rules are. I know that's something that's very important to you, Paul. You're a big rules guy when it comes to horror. Yes, what do you think about what Wes Craven does here in this movie about visually telling us the story instead of just spoon feeding us? Because we do eventually get an exposition dump, but I think it's earned by the time that we get it. Yeah, I would agree. I do have some problems with the shaky logic of the film by its end, but it's really only yes. in the last 15 minutes or so where it all kind of goes 
gets thrown at the wall. I'm like, ah, oh, who cares? You're in now, right? And I 100% right. agree. At the time, I watched it, certainly as a kid, and even rewatching it two or three times into my adult, now middle middle adult years, didn't really bother me. This time around, being watching it with a much more critical eye, that's where the film falls away from me. The final 15 minutes is very, very shaky. The final scene, terrible. But that first 75 minutes of this film are amazing. And some of those... So basically, once it goes home alone, that's when you're like, okay. Yeah, because I'm not quite sure how Freddy does some of what he does. Like, it's not well-established at all. He seems to come over into the real world in a way that, yeah, we're trying to drag him out, but then he kind of disappears through a hole in the bed after he, you know, flames... That Okay, okay, so let's get to it, yep. right? Let's get into a little bit of criticism because I've praised this movie a lot. In rewatching it, like you said, with a more critical eye, and it's not just like, ah, uh, you know, let's watch a scary movie, it's Nightmare on Elm Street, or it's just on TV, let's watch it. Actually watching it to assess it. I'm fine with her bringing him into the That's real fine. world. That's fine, I'm okay with that. That's part of the world, it's I'm, established. I'm fine with her because it's established earlier in the movie where she's like learning how to like set traps and do weird. Cause she's like, no one believes me. My friend, everybody keeps dying. I'm going to die. I got to stop it. And it's set up with the hat and she brings the hat over. I think all of that is established as part is making sense in this world where this is possible. So I'm all for it where it gets weird is once he's in the real world, again, I don't have any problem with him now being vulnerable. She hits him. It hurts. Like, he's tangible, right? He doesn't have his dream powers. I'm all for that. He's mortal, essentially. Yep. Got it. But then when he grabs the mom, and then they go into hell or whatever in the bed, it's it's a cool visual. But how is he going? Is he going back into the dream world? It makes no sense. That's exactly my point. Or was the whole coming into reality, was that still a dream? Is that what we're to believe? Uh, I know Wes Craven at one point said that he actually viewed the movie as a, the whole movie was a dream as a premonition of what was about to happen to the characters. And that to me feels very tagged on after the fact. Yeah. Because obviously, famously, there was a ending to this movie. And Bob Shea saw money. Yeah. And was like, we need, a, we need a last fright, and we need a tag for a sequel. And Wes was like, this is a one-off movie. Like, it's done. There is no more story here. And so they forced him to reshoot the ending That's that right. we got, yep. where the blow-up doll mom goes through the window, and the Freddy car takes him away, and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's immediately so obvious it's a dream because it's blown out white yep. and... It's foggy. It's like, you know, just everything about it is just so telegraphed. And you can kind of tell that, like, Wes's heart really isn't in it. Well, it's just to like, say nothing of the fact that everyone who's dead is now alive. So, correct. Yeah. It's almost as if, like, well, somehow by defeating him, she's undone all yes, the effects of right. what, he, what he did. So that sucks. But I don't blame Wes Craven for that because mm-hmm. that was studio mandate. Where it gets ropey, yeah, is he's grabbing the mom. He's like jumping out of the, jumping in and out of things. And it's like, Wait a minute. Is he tangible? Yes. <laughs> or is he not? Is this the real world or is it not? Because I think at that point in the movie, if it's if it's gonna be the real world, then it needs to apply to real world logic. If we're in a dream world, then we need to have more of a sense of this is a dream. I think the movie at that point wants to have it both ways. Yes, I agree. And unfortunately, it's a motif which runs through this pretty much this entire series. Yes. That they, they yeah, uh, get really, that- really <laughs> loose shall i say with their literally yeah. by the next movie the rules are thrown out yep. so th- if there is a rule a rule book for this franchise 
This is the only movie that even tries to come close. So as you've just uh, implied, it, it pings on my <laughs> internal reliability of world building pretty badly at times, this series. Uh, sometimes I get past it because the rest of the film is really, really good. And other times when the film is really, really terrible... Yeah, it gets hammered as a result for me, but not this case because the rest of this <laughs> yeah. film is really, really good other than the acting. The acting here is exactly what you would expect from a $1 million budgeted film. Heather Langenkamp at this point <laughs> in her career is terrible, flat out well, terrible. Here's the pro, okay? The pro is in an 80s movie with a, starring a teenager, she's not 45 years old. True, that's true. She actually looks like a teenager because yep. she was 19 when they made this movie. The downside is her acting is completely hit or miss. Yep. And I don't I don't think that she's absolutely terrible all the way through. I think there's a few scenes where she's pretty good. And I think there's some scenes where she's dreadful. And every permutation in between. So um Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it's very there's some moments she's tough. fine. Yeah. There's some yeah, there's some moments I think she's a serviceable actress. There's some other moments where I'm like, this is really like out of her league, this material. And the mom, who's, you know, was like, I think she came from the world of uh, soap operas, if I'm not She's mistaken. terrible, too. <laughs> she is absolutely, <laughs> in a different movie, yep. you know, the best actor in the movie is, other than uh, Robert England, who doesn't do as much as Freddie here. He's more of just an absolutely uh, kind of haunting, creepy, yep. disgusting Menacing. menace. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, he 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 does that mostly through body language and stuff that he's talked about in a million interviews yep. about Barnett from Cagney and the slump shoulder and the, oh, everything that he does. Uh, is John Saxton? John Saxton is so good in this movie that he's literally acting circles around everybody else. And anytime him and Heather Langenkamp have yeah. seen, even <laughs> if it's via phone, it's like he's in a different movie. I understand he had a lifetime career of genre and being. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. Just, but he was still a legit character actor. And you believe that guy's a fucking cop. Mm -hmm. And you believe that's the estranged father who's the cop in this town. And you believe that he thinks she, his daughter's going batshit crazy. And you, be, you believe all of that. Like everything, there's, he's the most grounded thing in this movie. And I think without him, it, 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 would suffer greatly like, if you had a if you had another shitty actor in that role. Yeah. You know, like Johnny Depp is fine, but I he's, think he's, he's actually pretty good. But he doesn't have a lot to do. Yeah. But he's very convincing as the kind of clueless boyfriend who's good natured yes. and like what? Like oh yeah, sorry. You shit. You were supposed to fall asleep. Oh, like his his horror yeah, yeah. is pretty good at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he comes off as an innocent. Um, I will say this. Speaking of the mom. If my daughter found the mutilated corpse of her best friend in the middle of the night and then the suicided corpse of her alleged, that friend's alleged killer fell into her lap and then started having nightmares, I would not think to take her to a sleep study lab. I don't need to go to a sleep study <laughs> lab. I know the source of the nightmares. Yeah. She's, two of her friends have been horribly, like one of them is a, maybe a killer and allegedly killed himself. And that guy killed her best friend. And and she saw the body and the blood. Like she's like She's traumatized, Bob. Yeah. She doesn't have fucking sleep apnea. Why the fuck are they going to a sleep lab? And I understand plot wise, it's so we could figure out the mechanic of bringing the hat into the, the, hat, the real yep. world. And we get a Charles Fleischer Roger Rabbit sighting, which is oh, very yeah, odd. I knew I knew put that somewhere. together as a kid. Okay. Yeah. Um but couldn't you like? Couldn't you have established that somehow elsewhere? Of just like she falls asleep on the couch and grabs his hat and comes out. Like yes. why? 
Why do we need the 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 aura of pseudoscience around that? Other than we're also establishing again how shitty a parent her mother is, which is a, a big motif in these films, because you know not just the fact that these people took it upon themselves to lynch mob a, a, a murderer, <laughs> but now yeah. following on from that, they're pretty shitty parents. Even even her dad's not a great parent. Let's face it. No, no, yeah, he's he's great character actor, shitty dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he gets shittier as the movies yeah. go on. We'll get back to him, but. Okay, well, I look. I I'm not even lie to the folks who are listening to this. As far as rankings go, it really came down to two movies. Yep, me too. Number one spot this week. I wonder if it's the other one. I don't know if it's gonna. I don't know if it's gonna be. It's this was one of them. I don't know if the other one. There's three movies that are very beloved. uh, Two of two of the classic run that are basically absolutely beloved. Um, it's this and Dream Warriors. Correct. And everybody loves Dream Warriors. It talks about Dream Warriors. And most people who are hardcore fans would even put it maybe even above this one. Um, so I really wrestled with a couple of these movies just as far as positioning goes. But coming in with an 8 out of 10, this film, the original, A Nightmare on Elm Street, it's going to go in my number one spot oh. adding to the short list. I I really enjoyed this movie, and it, it it has the benefit of being the original and being done pretty much on a micro budget. None of these are massively budgeted films, no. uh, and now in the light of day and an HD remastering, you can kind of tell that. And we'll get into it the further we go. They just started just started farting these out after a certain point, <laughs> um, but I I. I, this is my number one of the week. I, this is this is it with a bullet. Right. I can't fault you. Like, I totally get it. And I have had that same war with the same two films, right? It is since I yeah. rewatched them all probably five or six weeks ago. But I'm actually going to come down slightly differently. It is, oh, no. it is the end of this film, which drags it just slightly lower than perhaps the other film that you mentioned. Maybe Freddy's Dead is top of my list. Um <laughs> <laughs> So where is this coming for you? What's your score? What's your rate? I'll give you a seven and a half out of ten, and it's my second best film of the week. Okay, so we're not that far. No, not at all. Well, moving on, uh, it's time to go to what as was at one point the most reviled movie of the Nightmare canon, even more so than Freddy's Dead. They did an entire documentary about the effect this movie had on the psychology of the lead, Mark Patton. Poor guy. Which is, if you haven't seen it, I do recommend, uh, I think it's called Scream Queen. Uh, go ahead and check that out. It's a worthy documentary. Uh, I don't think it comes to any necessarily con- conclusions or uh, total resolution at the end. But if you want to see what the effects of a, of a B-movie script could have on a real man's life, uh, that is for you. Because that's the one thing we kind of forget when we talk about these movies is like, you know, yeah. be, sometimes being associated with this material is uh, not the best thing for your career. So, uh, well, of course, we're talking about a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which currently has a 41% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hi. A Nightmare on Elm Street, part two. Freddy Krueger is back. Me scared? Yeah, it scared the devil out of me. Hey, I've seen Jason and the rest, but Freddy's the best. Freddy's back, watch out. (laughs) A Nightmare on Elm Street, part two. Freddy's Revenge, rated R. 
from New Line Cinema. Freddy's Revenge was directed by uh, Jack Shoulder, Shoulder, written by David Kaskin, which, boy, man, if you watch that documentary. Have you seen that, Scream Queen? No, but I've seen the uh, Never Sleep Again, the big... uh, four hour whatever it is documentary yes, about yes. and it, As it gets yeah. a lot of time obviously they all do it they'll get about half an hour and yes he's interviewed there and yep not not a great bloke yeah 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 just not a not a great guy and if it's just if you watch the scream queen you'll get even more from him this is of course the triumphant return of clue Gulliger, last seen in the hidden one of the all-time great b-movie characters also directed by jack shoulder i think did he do the hit i think so yeah. Wow. Well, The Hidden's a great film. It is. Uh, <laughs> it was released November 1st, 1985, on a budget of $3 million. So you can already see, oh, it made a million. We'll put some more money mm-hmm. behind it. Uh, on a budget of $3 million, it only made $30 million at the box office Still a lot. in the U.S. Yeah. The new kid in town comes under the spell of Freddy Krueger and out of the closet. Kind of. Yep. Freddy returns to possess the body of an Elm Street kid in the most progressive horror film of the 80s, even if everybody beyond the star making the film didn't realize that. I don't want to give away so much of what uh, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street is about, but essentially it is Mark Patton interrogating the creators of this film saying, you knowingly wrote a gay horror movie with a bunch of gay subtext. I was not out. You cast me because you know privately people knew i was gay right so they did know he was that gay. was yep. absolutely not acceptable in the united states and in many places in the world at that time yep and then when this movie didn't do good the writer and director went on a tear and basically said well it's because he and i one of the quotes is like because he gated up wow so rather than taking responsibility for this being a shitty sequel in an era, by the way, where sequels often didn't do as well as the movie. It's different than it is today. In the 80s, the expectation from studios was that sequels were going to decline in revenue. It wasn't that you were going to make more with the sequel. It was that you were going to basically milk it until there was nothing left. And that was sequels were seen as, we're going to make about a quarter less, which is what this did. But because it was panned and it was reviled, uh, because it completely changed Freddy Krueger, who he was, pretty much how he operated, what the rules were, every you know everything from the first movie. It's gone. Other th- other than a couple random things was just thrown out the window, and this is a cash in movie. I mean, there's no other word for it. And they blamed the main actor, who was just doing what they was in the script. Yeah, doing what he was directed to do. Yeah. Doing what he was directed to do, and for years, this David Chaskin denied it. Until the documentary where he finally admits, well, yeah, that's that I put it in there just because I, I thought being gay would make audiences uncomfortable. So he was exploiting gay panic Ugh. to try to make a horror movie, and and he just thought it was funny, and he it literally ruined this guy's life. Yeah, it's awful. And it, and and if you get at the end of the movie, it I mean it breaks down how this man's life was ruined publicly, privately. It was awful. Because he never really and acted again, did he? Nothing serious anyway, nothing big. He doesn't even live, he moved to Mexico. Right. But he was a promising up-and-coming like Broadway star. He was. Uh, he worked with Cher. He was a TV star, a soap opera star. He was, you know, uh, an up-and-coming guy. He does this movie uh, almost just kind of as like a, this is going to be a big deal. Nightmare on Elm Street's a big deal. You're going to be the lead in it. Yeah. Okay, great. 
and it just absolutely re- the studio, everybody involved, pinned it all on him, and it tanked his career for years. Now, finally, he's he's sort of owning it, and he's going around talking about his experience and going to fan conventions when we're allowed to have them yeah. when there's not COVID. So there is a little bit of redemption, but it's it's awful and. <laughs> It's hard to watch this movie not with that knowledge. Like, of these people are there's so much overt homoeroticism, Paul. Oh, is there movie. ever? It's astounding. Like, and again, I watched it as that that twelve or thirteen year old. I didn't see it because it just wasn't on my radar. But watching it back now, yeah. it's like jaw dropping. Like, why is the very first time he and his mate are shown on screen together, Robert Russell's uh, Grady in the film? Let us get into a, yeah. a rough and tumble wrestle on the ground for, for shits and giggles. And people's pants are being pulled yep. down and their bare ass and jock straps are it's all overt homosexual imagery. To say nothing of the, the coach and his, you know, S and M underground lifestyle and that scene which is just borderline dis- not borderline, it's absolutely disturbing. The most disturbing scene in the whole film is when he takes this kid back to, to school. What's he gonna do to him? Like well, see, so, okay, so let's, we're just diving Sorry. right in. Let's do it. No, 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 let's just do it, okay? So he has a nightmare or a dream. He gets too hot. It, the things start melting in his room. And again, th- this is a movie where the other movie established that basically up until the point of death, surrealism only happened in the dream world. Correct. Right? In the first nightmare. Then after the person died, Maybe something surrealistic kind of broke through into the real world. Glenn being vomited up by his bed and this, that, or whatever. This is the opposite. All of the surrealistic stuff is happening in the real world, and almost none of it is in a dream. Yeah. Freddie's just appearing and talking to him. And, it, well, it's nighttime, so I guess he's asleep, but at some point, like... It, it, it's just none of it makes any sense. It's all happening in the real world because Freddy's somehow coming through into the real world, which is an inherently uninteresting idea. Uh, 100% it takes agree. away everything that was scary about the original film. Well, it also just says, well, Mark, it's Mark, right? That's his name. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, he's being possessed. Okay, so I can buy, as much as it's not as interesting as the first one at all, I can buy the fact that he can see Freddy everywhere. That's fine. But what doesn't make any sense then is the coach, for example, as just, as just one example, he gets basically attacked by Freddy, strung up, yes. you know, by spiritual skipping ropes and whatever else, and then spanked with a towel, yeah. in the shower, bare ass naked, right? And the film's meant to sort of, what, are we somehow Mark did that to him? Is that what we're meant to believe? But I don't get it. Well, M- Mark Mark Patton plays Jesse. Oh, Jesse, and sorry. So, my my yeah, apologies. Yeah. yeah, that's all right. So Mark Patton plays Jesse. And yeah, and then when it cuts to Jesse, Jesse's in the shower with the Freddy glove on. But the Freddy glove wasn't used. No. <laughs> it was just like a ghostly apparition was tying him up to a hot shower. And again, it's so disturbing because... You know, the records are melting in his room, and he's so hot, so he decides to go downstairs. Then he leaves the house, and then it's just a, a, a smash cut to him outside of an S&M gay bar. A kink bar. Not even a gay bar, like a, a kink bar. 
He goes inside. And ironically, Bob, Bob Shea is the bartender <laughs> in S&M gear, which is kind of hilarious. He he demanded they give him a role, so they made him the kinky bartender. Didn't say anything, and they put they put him in they put him in some leather daddy outfit from fucking Lord Humongous and Mad Max, <laughs> and and that's where he's at. He's at this deeply kinky S&M bar. Meanwhile, he's supposed to no, be an underage he's kid. He's 16, wasn't he? 17 tops. Yeah. What's he doing? The coach. Get out. Who's already been abusing him and his male compatriot. Um, it finds him there. And like you said, takes him back to the school in the middle of the night and is forcing him to run laps as he runs himself a shower. Like... The only assumption I can have is he's going to rape him. Well, right? that's almost the the well, it is. It is absolutely unsettling subtext in this. And I'm like, what? it's the '80s. I know teachers got away with a lot more, but that? Come on now! Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, it, it's it, there's there's almost no connection to anything established in the first film. The only thing they carried over was the house, which now, as these movies go on, and suddenly become a character. Diary? Nancy, Nancy's diary, because he's in Nancy's old house. And the thing I never understood about these films is her house was not Freddie's house. I think later they retcon it as, well, it was Freddie's house, and they moved in there to cover it up or whatever. But there was no associate. It was just where she lived. The fear was Freddie. It wasn't. It wasn't the actual literal house. But when you can't have reoccurring characters because you keep killing them off, you have to continuously bring in iconography to connect yeah. it to yep. the previous film. So that's what this movie does. We get almost a completely different kind of Freddie, and in a weird way, he's almost more sadistic here. There is something even, it's a different kind of creep. This isn't the Freddy who's like, this is God, and cuts his, or cuts his fingers off and laughs. There, this Freddy doesn't laugh. This Freddy is, is um, you know, the subtext of Freddy is that he's a pedophile, okay? 100%, yep. This is as close, I think, as the movie gets to just basically being like, this is a sex offender. There is a psychosexual, and Robert England has said that that they asked him to, and he chose to put that into his performance. He's he wanted there was a certain scene where they wanted Jesse to fillet the the razor. That's so right, I've read that. Yep, or yeah, saw the documentary. And, yeah, and Mark Patton was like, "I'm not doing that. No, like I'm not like going to put razor blades in my mouth and give it a blowjob." So they were going to go even further with it. So there's this. Obviously, the possession is a metaphor for rape and all this sort of stuff. And this, you know, he's got a girlfriend that he's not interested in. Oh, he's continuously running. He's the world's shittest boyfriend, that's for sure, in this film. <laughs> because he's gay. And but the movie doesn't have the courage of its convictions because it's not a gay positive film. No, it's not. It is. It's a shameful it is a thing. Movie, it's a shameful thing that the LGBTQ community has basically embraced, like the word queer. And they've turned it in from a pejorative, and it's something that is otherizing them. And and then is they're embracing, going, "No, this is our movie. We're not going to let you use it for shame. We're going to embrace the, even the camp of it, even the terrible dance sequence, because I, where he's masturbating with a pop gun. I guess because it's better than nothing. And at that stage, that's what the LGBTIQ A plus community was getting nothing. Right. So right. we'll take what we can get and we'll own it and, and rewrite it in terms of what works for us. And good on. That's fantastic. I think that they are, were able to find such 
positives out of out of what is such a shitty shitty film which did shitty shitty things to its lead actor there's only two good things in this movie i shouldn't say there's only two i think um the actress who plays <laughs> kim myers who plays lisa i think is pretty good i think uh clue Gulliger, i just love seeing him even though his character makes no sense oh, his character is an he- absolute prick <laughs> He blames his son for exploding a bird. That's it's right. The strangest fucking thing. My exact words were, look, I'm, I'm on my notes here, and sorry, uh, to the, you're listening with a sensitive ear. Turn off for the next three seconds. What a cunt. So, <laughs> Jesse! Uh, I, think, I think Robert Russler is Ron. I, I think he's great. I, like, here's what I would say. I don't think the acting isn't is, it, isn't I think cr- the acting's better in this movie. Yeah, it is. Uh, Robert Russler, I really liked him. He was in like Vamp and Weird Science. And yeah. yeah so, and then he just disappeared. I don't know what happened to Robert Russler. I have no idea. Yeah. But I, the acting is better in this. I don't think any of this is the actor's fault. I think the special effects are a little bit better at certain scenes other than the dogs with the weird baby faces and some of the weird shit that they do. That just looks awful. Well, there's one, there great, one great kill. Uh, well, that, there's two. I it was Grady. Is that his name? Robert Russell's character? His last name's Grady. Yeah. Uh, his yes. death so is he's... fantastic. That whole bit when yes. uh, Freddie yes. literally, Freddy literally comes out of, of Jesse and then skewers and... him against the door and slides the, the, the raises up yes. and his dad's on the outside and mum, I think, are on the outside yes. banging to get in and you see the... Oh, As he's wonderful. begging for his dad, yep. the, the, the big, strong guy of yep. the movie is begging, dad, help me, dad. And it works. It's effective. And the transformation sequence of, yeah, the face beginning to appear through the chest. That is, Freddy coming out of Jesse is burned into my yep. fucking soul. And it's the most effective special effect in the movie. 100%. And you can see a little bit of the rubberiness of it, especially in HD. But overall, there's still something very deeply unsettling about it. Mm-hmm. And to where Freddy literally just like sloughs him off like a coat. And Jesse's skin is just and blah is just on the floor, <laughs> and the and the menace of it. Freddie is menacing in this movie, and the other thing that is absolutely iconic from this film is as stupid as it is when he's in front of those teenagers that pool party, and it's a fucking idiotic scene <laughs> when he the flames are coming up and he puts his arms up and it's a behind shot, and then it pans around and goes. You my children now got fucking goosebumps just saying it that is so effective it's it's an icon it's literally an iconic freddie line for a character that came to be known for his iconic lines that's one of them and it happens to be from one of the worst movies in the series i can't there's nothing more i hate this film i hate the end of it in particular i hate that love conquers all and somehow yes (laughs) somehow gets freddie dead and you know Jesse's girlfriend is the one that rescues him, and yet, yet again, she's an amazing person, and he's just being terrible to her, as you say, because he's gay. But that's not a reason to be a with someone and hiding it, and b just a terrible, terrible human to them. And then somehow they still love you enough to get the power of Freddie out of you, however briefly. However briefly. The other thing that is is baked into my soul, though, is the actual ending of this movie. Ugh. And it's not really effectively done because you see a hard fucking edit. You can literally see an edit line in the middle of the fucking frame. (laughs) But as a kid watching this on the USA Network, I remember this. And and honestly, the weird edit almost makes it more jarring in a really weird way. And sometimes the graininess 
and the the lo-fi nature of these horror movies makes them more odd in a weird way. Uh, where the, a lot of the slick platinum dunes recreations of these films that we got about ten years ago, yeah, they're too slick. They're not gritty enough. They're not grainy enough. I'm talking about the bus scene where it's where she's like, "Don't worry, Jesse, it's all over." There's nothing, and then all of a sudden, Freddie's arm just yes. comes right through her fucking chest. <laughs> And they ride off, and then they're just like in this weird uh, Metallica, Stone Temple Pilots uh, uh, album art, <laughs> where the bus is just on these weird. How dare you associate those bands with this film? <laughs> <laughs> the Pit of Hell. That is deeply memorable for me as well. I think that's one of the probably the most evocative images of the whole franchise. And you're going to say that Grady's the best kill. I I would agree. I think the makeup here, as compared to the first movie, I think it's a different makeup artist. In the first film i think the makeup here in a weird way is more malevolent looking but i'm also more aware that there that's more appliances and different pieces the first makeup mostly kept in shadow exactly of freddy yeah. felt like a whole piece it felt like a whole face right where th this you can kind of see and again this is we're watching this remastered hd and 4k tvs or whatever so you can see the seams of the makeup a little bit here. But there's something more, not, not want to say witchy, but there's something more malevolent about the nose and the features. He's, 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 uh, you can, his teeth are more rotten. There's just, there's just something about him that's just more like decayed. What do you think of the makeup? And uh, we already know you think the best kill is Grady. So. Yeah, I think the, the makeup was better in this film only because it's exposed more and clearer and and i'm not disagreeing yeah. with anything you said there it just it was more it, scary i think in the first one because it was most he was mostly in shadow and he was kept in you know only underlit in most uh places but here especially in that scene you spoke about when you're all my children you see it all there in its glory he's out and about he's even got his hat off and he's running around yeah, so yeah. you, you really get a good very look at it. very tiny He's very tiny. Oh, Robert, Robert England. There's something about a little yeah. tiny, the way he's running. I laughed at that. I, and then the guy's like, hey, man, what do you need? We you need you some help. And he's like, help yourself, fucker. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, he, we hadn't got to the stage where he just said bitch repeatedly. You know? so he's like, help yourself, fucker. Arguably. And it's this, just this little, I was <laughs> this little Peter Dinklage oh. <laughs> running around. Arguably, this might be the biggest body count in, in all the Nightmare films because he probably kills seven or eight people at that at that party. Oh yeah, that party is a bloodbath. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. A, that's uh, a disturbing if, acknowledgement that this is has the highest number of kills because not this shouldn't win anything. This particular film, I don't think, certainly doesn't win anything here today for me. Well, I'm guessing this is coming in dead last for you. Am I wrong? Nope, not dead last. Second last. Oh, me too. It's my number four as well. Would you give it out of ten? How, aren't we doing seven films? <laughs> well, the skeptics and all the people have a little bit of... Let me do this again. Oh, it's live, Hal. Sorry. It's not good at all in any front whatsoever. I'm giving this a 2.2 .2 out of 10, and it's coming in as my sixth best of the week. Um, You're going to hate me for this. I'm going to give it a 4.25 oh. out of 10. And here's where you're really going to hate me. It's only my number four for the week. Oh. I think that there are a couple more... <laughs> This is where the internet is really going to hate me. Wow. Oh, I you, think... You better not... Jeez, I'm doing the math <laughs> in my head. Oh, okay. 4.25, and it's my 4 out of 7. Oh, that means you've... Okay, right, we're going to really disagree <laughs> somewhere in here. Oh, deeply, deeply. 
All right, moving on to a fan favorite from maybe one of the most controversial to one of the most beloved sequels of the franchise. Of course, I'm talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, which currently has a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's 1987. Do you know where Freddy is? There's no waking up from this nightmare. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors, rated R. Now showing at a theater near you. This film was directed by Chuck Russell, who also directed The Magnificent Blob. I did an episode on that with Dr. Wolfula. Uh, Check that out in the archives. It's a screenplay by Wes Craven. That's kind of more of a ode to him because they didn't really use a lot of his script. Yeah, a lot of his influence in this movie has been overblown because they threw out most of his ideas because they said Uh they were too dark and too sadistic. (laughs) But because he had a first pass on the script, they had to give him a story credit or a screenplay credit. Uh, Bruce Wagner, Frank Darabont, yes, that Frank Darabont, mm-hmm. uh, and Chuck Russell, with a story by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner. It is the triumphant return of Larry Fishburne, last seen in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, this film was released. This is not a good time to release a horror movie, so it tells you what they thought about the third one. It was released February 27th, 1987, huh. on a budget of 4.3 million, it made 44.8 million at the worldwide box office. A new generation of Elm Street kids learn to fight back against America's favorite pedophile. <laughs> the Nightmare series strikes a perfect balance between horror and humor as Freddy goes to town on a bunch of Elm Street kids in a psychiatric ward. Can I tell you what I love about this movie? Let's start there. I love that Freddy is now a public health crisis. <laughs> No, I'm being serious, which is an idea that gets picked up again in Freddy versus Jason, which is they're dealing with him as you would COVID-19. Or they're de- they're, it's through quarantine. If somebody gets infected, if somebody sees him in a dream, if they can't, if they can't stay on hypnosil, which gets introduced in this movie, you put him in a fucking insane asylum and you keep him doped up because the only way to stop Freddy is to stop the fear from spreading. And that right. idea is seeded here in this the, this movie. And I think that is actually ingenious. I think that was part of, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was part of what came from Wes Craven's story idea that they carried over. And I think, I wish it had been explored a little bit more, but that would have taken some more time and more budget and probably less kills. Right. But I the idea of Freddie as a public health crisis, Freddie as not, 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 not like... A men- mental health issue, but more so in a mental health issue with a physical disease element, because you will die from encountering him. I think that's a fantastic idea. But they don't believe him, right? They don't believe Freddie exists. They believe that these kids believe it, but they are putting them in there because they think he's a shared psychotic uh, delusion, yes. basically. Right? Correct. So they- yeah, we're we're yeah the the Freddie versus Jason. By that point, they're just like, yeah, he's fucking real. Right. And we got to keep the the lid on him that's an extension of this movie but i think the ideas are seen here and like you said the adults 
uh, are just like are anti-maskers and are anti-vaxxers, <laughs> and they don't want to. You know, they yeah, they're like these. This is a shared delusion from these teen delinquents, and for whatever reason, this this boogeyman myth is fucks up with uh, already fucked up kids' minds, and we just got to put them in an insane asylum and therapize them uh, and 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 convince them through th- talk therapy that he's not real. Yeah, until Nancy um, comes back, of course. Yes. My question is, when exactly is this supposed to be happening in regards to the first film? Because how the fuck is Nancy Thompson now like a, a doctor? If she's a doctor. Or at least a PhD candidate. That means she's, a, yeah, she's been at least in the system for six years, right? So it has to yeah. be set, therefore, in like years ahead. Because uh, I got so this, this, this. They put her in suits yeah, this or whatever else. Like, what, 1990? Yeah, right? have this to has be. to be like, <laughs> have to be, Right. Um, it never occurred to me, Paul. Again, I'm watching these on S, you know, standard definition broadcast television or VHS. It had never occurred to me until this watch just how low budget these movies are and how low budget they look. Their, the film stock quality, the lighting, the, the the sets, the production design, anything outside of the kills. And even some of those, some of the optical effects, <laughs> you can really tell these are like DIY movies. Yeah, you can. But I think that's some some of their charm. Like they're not, like you said, they're not platinum dune slick, amazing looking films, which lose some of their soul, if I can use that term, as a result. Yeah. They they are grimy, grindy, dirty and dank horror films with the, as we're moving now into the more comedic sort of elements with this is where Freddie becomes his Probably his best quippiness. This is where it's most effective in this particular. It's because it's so slight. Yep, he's only got one or two quips, and they're perfectly timed. Yep. And the rest of the time, he's menacing. Welcome to prime time, bitch. That's the one. And then that was such a hit. They're like, "That's what he is now." Mm-hmm. But this is the same movie where he takes a guy's veins, strips them out like a marionette, There's and your best walks kill. him to a bell tower yep. and throws him the fuck off the bell tower. And it that there's nothing funny about that. That is deeply disturbing mm-hmm. to this day. That is some gross practical effects. That's some disturbing imagery. This is a guy who gets off. Freddie gets off on torturing children. Yep. That's and what's so disturbing, one, right? One time Robert fucking England does a take where he's a little bit tongue in cheek because they did multiples. Oh, did they? And that was not yeah, that right. was not the scripted line. But he just was like, he added a little bit of flourish to it. Welcome to prime time, bitch. And from that point forward, that's what they honed in on with Freddie. Which I'm sure if you're Robert England is like, I get to stretch some fucking acting muscles finally. Yep. Uh, but And I've obviously that made him the, the zeitgeist character that he was. But it, I think it's to the detriment of the series. And we'll get to it in the, basically starting the next film. Absolutely. Where it's just like, what the fuck is this? Uh, suddenly he's like the hero almost of these films. It's like we're almost supposed to be rooting for him, murdering these people, and we lose any sense of menace or dread, which this movie has. And so I understand the appeal of it because it raises the stakes for fantasy and surrealism. Uh, It has some of the most creative dream sequences of the entire series. That snake thing. There's so many good moments. Well, that's what I was going to ask yeah. you. What did you think about the phallic Freddy snake? Because I think it's a tremendous prop for a low-budget yeah, movie. Yeah, exactly. It almost killed 
Patricia Arquette for real almost broke her back. Is that why? But, is that why she refuses to have anything to do with this film and talking about it? I don't know. I know it seriously almost injured her because it was just a high, basically a hydraulic vice, and <laughs> it was just banging her right. on the floor. Jesus. And and back then they just didn't give a shit about actors, especially in these low budget movies. So well, who's Patricia Arquette? She's gonna be no it. one. She should just be thankful she's <laughs> you know the second lead in this film. Well, Look what like I was I think it's Warner Brothers, but uh, uh, look at um, somebody will kill me if I'm wrong. But look what they did to like, Tiny Linda Blair with that bed contraption device where they fucked up her back to this day. Right, she was like a like a preteen, and that was from a major studio in so-called elevated horror and The Exorcist. This was literally this, this these movies were being made in fucking garages. Seriously, like New Line was not. We're not at Lord of the Rings New Line. No, not we're yet. not at <laughs> Time Warner bought New Line. We are at. They were an exploitation film company, mostly exploitation distribution company. They didn't start producing films. And when they did, it was just all Grindhouse stuff. So, you know, that's the reason why it was known as the house that Freddie built, because this is when they started being lucrative. Yep. Which is why they made seven of these fucking things. Yeah. Look, I I think it's, this film has so many of the great, as you say, nightmares, some of those iconic moments, you know, they did it in the first one and they recreated it here that, you know, you're running slowly through stuff, the like stairs that your feet get yeah. trapped in. All these real, everyone can relate to that sense of running on the spot in a nightmare. So it brings yeah. all those elements back in a perfect way. It has Nancy come back. Nancy is a better actor in this film. She certainly improved Absolutely. her craft, yeah. so that works as well. I really like the 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 kids, like from King K through to Joey through. Uh, well, to- let's go through them one by one, Paul. Please. Let's go through them one by one. We got Will. Will is in a wheelchair. Yep. Here's my question. Why not just call him wheelchair? <laughs> I think you answered your own question with that laugh. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's, he's, he's a D&D dungeon master, just like you were at this age, Paul. Uh, at that age? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have Kincaid. He's cool but rude. We have Strong. Philip, who's a sleep, sleepwalking dude. And we have Taryn. Who's a sexist? Who's the sexiest heroin addict? Maybe in all of horror movies. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Jennifer Rubin. Yeah, I, I have an I, I have it on good authority that uh, you are a fan of uh, Jennifer Rubin, at least in this film. Is this is this uh, correct? Uh, yes, I am. I think they're all good in this film. I don't think there's a weak link no, 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 really no, no, in the no, cast. No, 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 that's not what I mean. I mean, I mean I, what I'm saying is I mean it in an objectifying well, way. No, not once she becomes. I <laughs> once she gets her dream warrior on. It's not really my thing. <laughs> Oh, that's when she. That, to me, she goes from a seven to a ten. When she when she goes into the full punk rock, uh, proto straight hair thing. up. That's where you lose yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My, minus the track marks and yeah, the uh, suction, the sucking mouths. How good was that effect for a low budget film as well? Fantastic. Now, here's what I would say: that death. There's a couple of these, but this is where the deaths start to become ironic. Yes. Right. Yep. Where okay, in the first one. Glenn falls asleep as Ben eats him. There's no like wow. I- ironic like Ben's or or uh, 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 what whatever his name is. What's his name? What did I just say? Well, the st- skeptics and all the people have a little bit. Of- Let me do this again. Oh, it's live, Hal. Oh, in the, oh, Glenn, Glenn in the first one. Glenn, yeah. yeah. Okay, Glenn's bed eats him. Right. There's nothing in Glenn's backstory of like he's afraid of his bed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, it's just a creative kill. There's not like, well, Tina really hates ceilings. So, you know, <laughs> like, like, there's none of that, right? 
this is where they're like, let's start to get inventive. Oh, this, like, uh, you know, Alabama Renee Zellweger, a.k.a. Jennifer character, who's got delusions of grandeur. She's going to go off and be a star in Hollywood. Like, we're going to crash her head through the fucking television. <laughs> you know, like, you want to be, here's your big break, Jennifer. And, you know, and like, you know, uh, the one the one girl's a heroin addict, so like he overdoses her. Yep. His finger his fingers come turn into uh, uh, hyperdermic needles or whatever, and he he pumps her full of dream heroin. You know, the kids are obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons, and so uh, he, he takes on a really shitty <laughs> fantasy dungeon. His death is not good. He's the the one weak death I think in the film. It doesn't make sense. Like, like his wheelchair turns against him. Yeah. I like the idea of him. I like the idea of the kids taking on aspects of their yes, identity and being like, I'm the dream master or whatever he says. I'm the, the dream wizard or whatever. Yeah. And, like, he's kind of giving Freddy a little bit back to him a little bit. And I like that idea. And I like, you know, Kincaid is the strong one. So in the dream, he's like Superman or whatever. I like these ideas but this is where this is this is like the best of the sequels, and also everything that's wrong with the sequels. Don't <laughs> say that! Time. How dare you? Everyone just it, switched but, off. It, but here's what here's what happens: you've got Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell and relatively smart people Barry. who are doing some they're, they're they're doing some kitschy stuff, but they're doing it kind of knowingly. But there's also an intelligence to it. And then when you put that in the hands of a Rennie Harlan or some of these other people who come along, it just becomes about these like ironic deaths and these paper thin characters. And Agreed. I hate cockroaches out of nowhere. So I'm going to become a cockroach and you can start, it starts telegraphing the deaths. Like what is the one thing that what's the one character trait that person has that's going to kill him. Like Absolutely. that guy likes karate. Freddie's going to become a Kung Fu master and kick his ass. Like it's just, it's, that starts here, though. Does. Which is like we got to establish one thing about these characters, and that's the thing that's going to be their undoing. And I, that you know, Joey's mute, and he has a heart on uh, all the time, and he he wants to fuck that nurse, so you know the nurse is going to be Freddie at some point. And I, uh, that that wore thin this time for me on this viewing. All right, not for me. I really enjoyed this return. I, as I said, I think this is the perfect blend. The the two or three really funny moments, and yes, the ironic deaths. They all they all work for me in this film. I'll agree with you. There is a law of diminishing returns, and the further we get away from this film, the worse that becomes. But in this film, it's not new, but it works for me at least. Anyway, I really like all the secondary characters. I think they are unique enough and different enough, and you do come get just enough time to care about them so that when they do inevitably die, there is a sense of oh, I like that one. And I don't think yeah, any other film establishes that well at all. Even, I mean, even uh, Tina's boyfriend's death, you're like, whatever, he's an asshole. Whereas yeah. <laughs> this, film, yeah. this film does a much better job of, I think, than any of the Nightmare films about establishing a cast of characters that you care about. And it has the balls enough to bring Nancy back and kill her, which I totally for oh, forgot let's about. Let's get to that fucking death, though. It's a shit death, this is, but, it's, uh, but this at is least the they killed woman, her. This is like the Freddy expert. Yep. To the point that when she accidentally gets sucked back into the Freddy dreams by the dream master, uh, uh, who is Kristen, Kristen that's it. Patricia Arquette's character, um, she pulls her in, and Freddy, as the phallic snake worm thing, looks at her and goes, you, yep. right? That's his, his boogeyman, mm -hmm. is Nancy Thompson. 
which I think is fucking awesome. Yep. How she gets killed Bit is Freddy pretends to be her dad, which they're still in the dream world, and there's no chance in hell she would, yeah. that Nancy Thompson wouldn't be like, that's Freddy Krueger. <laughs> she was, no, it's like, I'm going to heaven now, sweetie. But before I go, I have to tell you I love you, and it's so wonderful. Like, there's no chance she would believe that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, it's that's such a week. punk fucking death for such a kick-ass character by this point in the series. Yep. Except the fact that they did kill her. Because I'd totally forgotten that when I went. And this is the fifth or sixth time I've seen this movie. And I'm like, all right, yeah. She dies. Shit. That was ballsy. Because I thought, I guess they thought that Patricia Arquette would be back in the next one. As long as it did well well enough. Yeah. What's ironic is that this begins, we get way more of the Freddy lore. This is where he becomes the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Now, I know know a little bit about the birds and the bees, but I don't think a hundred cum shots makes one crazy or less crazy. It's still one <laughs> sperm that's going to make it to Great. the egg. <laughs> like, like, you can take as much maniac cum as you want to and ingest it, and it's not it's not going to impregnate you with 100 maniac children. Like, that's not how vaginas work. It's not how fallopian tubes or uteruses work or any of that. Uh, his mom's a nun. Uh, I, I think now all of a sudden we're getting this, this sort of vampire Catholic imagery, which is like, mm-hmm. you got to take his, he was never buried. He was never buried. We got to consecrate a burial site and bury his bones and that will put him to rest. And yep. it's like, when was that? W- w- since when? Since when is Freddie Catholic? Since when is this a world of religion at all? Look, I agree. But they have to, every time we come back for another sequel, they have to somehow explain a how he's come back and then b undo that in a way to have him defeated at the end of the of the film so they keep <laughs> they keep writing themselves another layer yes. over the top every sequel and it's the same for any any one of these i mean by the end of the friday 13th sequel uh, series jason was a bloody worm that jumped into your mouth and <laughs> overtook your body so i mean he also I, would go into your vagina too yeah. he went into his sister's vagina oh, don't geez. forget that his dead sister's vagina he went inside of it and reanimated his yeah. body let's not let's not spoil next year <laughs> right <laughs> just when you thought it was safe to go back into the bathroom ghoulies too ah! they'll get you in the end again ghoulies too okay as a professional let me ask you about dr neil Dr. Neil, at one point in this movie, tells a group of troubled children that suicidal ideation is weakness and his patients are cowards. Yeah, no, not what you would say. (laughs) And yet... You lose your license over that shit. And yet he's still a better doctor than the Gina Hardface bitch who is presiding over the whole hospital. Nurse Ratchet 2.0. Even after, there's a moment where Joey is in the coma and Freddie... In the real world, once again, that blurring yes. of the way shit works between, yes. uh, which is always yeah. a problem through all these films, although there's less of it in this movie, thankfully. Uh, yeah. Come and get him, bitch. Right? Right. At that point, did the doctor stop believing that uh, this is all fake and start realizing it's all that- all psychosomatic, Paul. <laughs> how the fuck did someone- So someone either yeah. wrote, got in there and wrote that on him and we need to find out who did that, or yes. mm, there's more going on here than we are prepared to acknowledge. And that shits me to tears that she lived and never died in, that, in this movie. It's one of my down points. That that is that's that is the thing, right? They kill off drunk John Saxton, who somehow becomes a worse fucking dad <laughs> in this movie, and he was even the first. At least he was willing to humor her in the first one. 
This At least he put a cop out in the front. Together. Just watch my daughter's yeah, house. Yeah. <laughs> just, w- just watch my daughter. Just make sure she's... Now he's like, oh, I'm not even a cop anymore. Oh, I don't believe in any of this. It's like, motherfucker, you hit the bones. Yep. Like, you were there. Like, you, you were there. She's not making it up. Do you, you not remember what happened to your mum? To your wife? Ex-wife, sorry? She got dragged into hell. Do you, do you not remember what happened to fucking Glenn? Mm-hmm. Glenn's... Uh, uh, that's the thing, okay? At regardless of what you want to say, in any of these sequels, they just need to fucking acknowledge that Freddy Krueger is real. Yep. Because a teen boy got sucked to his bed and the bed vomited fifty thousand people's worth of blood all over the fucking ceiling. There wasn't any bone left. There wasn't meat left. The only explanation is supernatural. Yeah. That's it. To paraphrase uh whatever horror movie it is, uh People don't just explode into torrents of blood. I don't care how crazy they are. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Sister Mary Helena is Amanda Kruger, and she also played Nan Martin in the Drew Carey show. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. We have the same priest here who was the priest in the first Nightmare series, which I thought was a nice little touch. Uh, For me, I think the best kill of the movie is the tendon marionette. Yep. Philip is the tendon marionette. Right there with that you. That is just so fucking disturbing to this day. It's not funny. It's just deeply upsetting to watch. Like when I think Freddy Krueger, I think as he looks in this film. Yes. Uh, what do you think? What's your best kill? What do you think of the makeup? 100% marionette kill. I think the makeup here is better than the previous two films. I don't think it's ever bettered again in the series. It just looks, nope. it just looks, it's a perfect blend of the first one and the second one where there's more yep. of it, but it looks better than it did in the last one. So, and we see it more clearly, obviously, because we're not hiding Freddy in the shadows all the time anymore. So I right there with you, big tick there. My other big question is how the fuck does Larry Fishburne get third billing in this movie and doesn't even enter the film for the final act? Where does he go? Exactly. Where does Max go? What? Oh. I think after after he lets Jennifer or whatever watch TV, I don't think we see him again. We don't. Do we? Or maybe maybe sh- we do. But- I literally right here. How is Larry Fishburne third billed in this film? Like, Whose agent? Whatever his agent was, he should be given a knight, a knighting, and become Sir Whoever forever, or or the lady. The only thing I can, yeah, the only thing I can guess is because he was nineteen when he was in Platoon. Is this film after and Platoon? So, this is after Platoon. Oh, okay. Yep. So he was like, he's like the biggest star that they had, even though he's nothing in this movie and wasn't necessarily a star. He would have been in legitimate movies, right? Okay. <laughs> this, these are not legitimate movies. No. Yeah, which I did. I just did not categorize them. When I would hear critics deride these movies as not being like actual films and being just kind of like just junk uh, and cheap junk, tawdry sort of B movie junk, I that never made a hundred percent sense to me because as a kid, you you can tell there are differences between movies, but you're not very discerning. Children uh, don't have taste, right? Twelve is the pinnacle uh, of loving everything. Correct. Yeah, so when I'm watching these movies from, you know, I probably re-started watching them when I was like eight because I needed some time away from them. But like (laughs) eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, these are just scary movies. These are are just, they're not even scary movies. They're just Freddy movies. I had no discernible way of being like, this is not as good as Terminator 2. <laughs> like, I probably knew that, but I didn't know why, right? Yeah. Yep. I was like, yeah, it's not. But I, I couldn't be like, oh, well, it's because this movie was, was just like made by like Greg Nicotero 
uh, accidentally just like on a in a three month turnaround since the last one came out in theaters. Like pretty much because you look at the release schedule. This is one of these a year. Yeah, well, they dropped the ball here. They, they didn't push it from November to February, so they had an extra whole four months. Maybe that's why this film is so much better. <laughs> it must be, right? It's just that extra script revision. Because at certain points, when we're getting to it, they're writing the fucking script as they're shooting the movie, mm. which is, I don't always, think Always, always results in <laughs> A-class filmmaking. <laughs> just ask the Hobbit series. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, if you had to give this one a score out of 10, what would you give it? Where does it rank? Well, this is my number one of the week, as we alluded earlier on, and I'm giving it just a slightly better 7.7 out of 10. Uh, we diverged in a way I didn't see coming, I'm going to be honest with you, because I'm going to give this a 6 out of 10. Oh. And I don't, this is only my third best of the week. Okay, There's well, one higher than this. Yeah, that one. Okay, that's where we're going to really diverge then. Because <laughs> it, it can only be one. Oh, Surely. no. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be Freddy's dead. All right, let's just keep this, let's keep this nightmare going. You want to swing by binge movies to pick up the latest hit film, but you don't live in Akron, Ohio? You're in luck. We're now offering exclusive binge movie membership cards to our monthly supporters. After all, what's a video store or a video club without a membership card? or its members. For $3.99 a month, you'll get a personalized membership card with your name and exclusive member number. That card entitles you to one feature presentation review, a special thank you on an episode, and a free pack of classic trading cards. Just keep in mind, do not eat the gum. I repeat, do not eat the gum. Go to bingemovies.podbean.com and hit the get your membership button to start your membership today. You can also give a one-time sponsorship. For $5, you receive a high-quality vinyl classic waterproof binge movie sticker. For $10, you get any film we haven't reviewed for a deep dive feature presentation review. And for $25, you get your choice of any five films for us to rank. Just go to bingemovies.podbean.com today and hit either the membership button or sponsorship button to control the binge. Oh, you said the law of diminishing returns. Let's go to A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which has a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, there is no one more terrifying on the screen today. He is the first in fear. And you thought it was only a movie. A brand new nightmare. Welcome to Wonderland, Alice. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 4. The Dream Master, rated R. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. This film was directed by Rennie Harlan with a screenplay by... With a screenplay by Brian Helgeland. You'll know that name because he did... L.A. Confidential. Jeez. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Patriot. Actually, yeah. And, and Mystic nice River. Tale. Mystic River. And Mystic well. River. <laughs> I wrote that here. I've forgotten I've written that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some other people get story credit. I want to skip over it. It is based on characters by Wes Craven and Bruce Wagner because they're bringing some folks back from the third one. Uh, 
heavily recast by Tuesday night. It was released <laughs> August 19th, whoa, 1988. Whoa. Are you trying to suggest for one second that Tuesday night's not the actress that Patricia Arquette is? <laughs> <laughs> no offense to, to Tuesday night. She seems like a great lady. Uh, she does a lot of conventions. She seems to be great for the fan base. It seems like just a really cool person uh, and had a very bad experience on this set. Uh, was body shamed and was treated very horribly uh, by Rennie Harlan, uh, who was apparently just a monster on set. (laughs) But, um, yeah, she's not Patricia Arquette. On a budget of $6.5 million, the budget's going up. Yeah. This thing made $49.4 million at the U.S. Second most successful then, so it was more successful than, okay. Yeah, there you go. The funniest sex offender not named Bill Cosby quips as he kills one-dimensional retreads of better characters. Freddie kills yet more kids from Elm Street, prompting the question, just how many parents were in the lynch mob that burned him alive? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The whole town killed this fucker. We finally get Freddie. John Saxton's killed. They get his bones. (laughs) The bones come to life. They killed John Saxton. Then they take holy water and they spread into bones. Then a bunch of light crosses appear on Freddy in the dream world and he's destroyed. And a handful of our dream warriors actually live, That's which right. is a change Unusual. of pace. Yep. Freddy's done. Amanda Kruger fades away. Her spirit could finally rest, uh, or so we we're led to believe. And we find out that uh, the ghost nun that's been helping them all along was actually Freddy's mom. Yep. And that's how the movie ends. And Freddy's dead, and we're all happy, and whatever. Well, there's only um, one substance that's more powerful than holy water in the whole of, I'm getting in at. the whole of the universe, Jason. I think you and I both know this. Certainly, Freddy, how is Freddy resurrected? Well, Brian Hel- Helgeland. What, how do you say his name? Uh, Helgeland. Helgeland. He certainly knew this as well. So I'm really glad that we tapped into a universal truth that is, dog piss is more powerful than holy water. Now this is where the rules get really fucked up. Uh, Freddy had to be buried in the real world. His real physical bones that the parents hid. John Saxton hid the bones as the cop to cover up the murder. They have to refine his bones in a real junkyard and bury them for real. Not in a dream. But in this film. (laughs) But in this film, they go into a dream. That's a good point. And somehow the dog which is a real dog, which is Kincaid's dog, bites him for no apparent reason, is evil in the dream world, pisses on the dream world ground, and dream fiery piss resurrects Freddy in the dream world and the real world. How the fuck is that possible? Well, you've just changed my score because, <laughs> you know, I've got to be consistent. If the film's not going to yeah. be consistent, I need to be uh, maintain that. So, yes, I've just dropped my score. I've changed my ranking. It hasn't affected anything we've talked about so far. So, well done. You've just brought us closer together on what was going to be something because you're absolutely right. I, I had not clocked. This is taking place in a dream where everything else was taking place in real life. So, that's a yes. dumb, dumb move. Because here, the setup is kind of cool, right? Which is the new Kristen, a.k.a. Tuesday Night, not Patricia Arquette, keeps going back to these haunted locations from the third film. But there's nothing there. There's nothing spooky. 
The, there, there was a boiler. It's cold. The boiler room, he's not there. There's no Freddy. Freddy's dead. Freddy's buried. Freddy's gone. So she keeps revisiting this trauma and these, these nightmares, but they're not nightmares anymore. And when she get, goes back in, because she's got this power to suck people into her dreams, she's sucking in all of the, the Joey and Kincaid yep. and whoever to go. And they're like, we're just high school kids now. We beat his ass. It's been a year or whatever it's been. Got to stop like, doing this, been, Kristen. Yeah. And it, that's actually kind of cool. And she's like, and they flat out tell her, like, if you keep doing this, you're going to dig him up. You're going to bring, you're going to bring him back. You have to move on. That is such a fundamentally more interesting idea of the inability of this girl to get yes. over the, the trauma being the thing that resurrects Freddy. Hang on. Are you suggesting that's more interesting than flaming dog piss? <laughs> <laughs> It's not a more interesting visual, per se, <laughs> but it makes some kind of sense. They went to, they set it up, and then it has nothing, nothing to do with what resurrects him. And instead, and they think they're being clever because the dog that pisses on his grave is named what? Do you remember? No, I don't. Jason. Oh, right. <laughs> So this is at a time when Paramount and Friday the 13th are competing for box office horror supremacy mm -hmm. with A Nightmare on Elm Street. And so they have a character, which is a dog named Jason, piss on Freddy's grave and bring Freddy back as a sort of like an in-joke. And then Kincaid says some kind of knock about his, his own dog, which is Jason. He's like, you're like... Oh, you're 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 you know you're not very good, Jason. Or was there some kind of right. a slight, which is meant to be a dig at obviously Jason Voorhees. And why is Kincaid's dog? Why does Kincaid's dog turn against him and bite him? And why does Kincaid's dog dream logic? That's why. And the, well, because here's the stupid thing, right? It's not. It's, Rennie Harlan said this. Because it was that was not in the script. Rennie Harlan liked the visual of the dog pissing it being fired. Oh, Rennie Harlan again. They're they're not in Kincaid's dream. They're in the dog's dream. Right. <laughs> because that's why the dog has power in that dream. Kristen not only brought Kincaid, she brought, she brought the Jason dog. In. Right. Yeah, but they're actually in Jason's dream, and that's why he's able to bring Freddy. Why would the dog want to bring Freddy back? Freddy uses yep. the dog's dream to bring him back. What's what fucking sense does that make? It doesn't Through make Through Christmas magic powers. <laughs> what are we talking about here? Get fucked. All bets are off by this stage in the series, ladies and gentlemen. That is hundred percent the truth. Fucking bullshit! The resurrection of Freddy is one hundred percent a hell hellraiser ripoff of the resurrection of Frank. And if you think I'm wrong. Hellraiser came out in 1987. This movie was in production at the same time Hellraiser was in theaters. And they stole the uh, body part with the flash and then it slowly reanimates. They just sped up the whole thing. They, right. It's literally the skinless. It's, it's, it's almost looks like Frank from fucking Hellraiser. And it's an impressive visual, but you just know that they lifted it. And that's where this, at this point, from this movie forward, that's what they're doing. They're just fucking lifting stuff from pop culture. They're taking things from other horror movies because they're, they're cranking these things out so fast 
they're not even bothering to write scripts anymore. It's just what looks cool, what will be funny, what funny thing can Freddie say, what's a death, it doesn't have to make any sense whatsoever, what's a creative death that will get people oohing and on and getting uh, idiot teenagers in the theater uh, and, you know, forking over their parents' money. That's all this series is pretty much from this point forward, with one exception. Yeah, can't argue with any of that, except now I'm going to defend the film a bit. I don't hate this movie. I actually think it's pretty good. Take all that thing you said out of there. I like the development of the new girl, Alice, I think it is. And her her power to take on the power of her dead friends. That's a nice addition to this particular world. That works Okay, time out. Time out. Time out, though. Why bring Kristen and the Dream Warriors back? To kill them immediately. unceremoniously kill them off of the all of them yep. in the first 10 minutes to give all of the magical powers to a new character. Don't know. Why not just fucking start with Alice? Yeah. Agreed. And, we're, and it's, oh, we're being so clever because it's Alice, but instead of Wonderland, she's in the dream world yep. and she has to go down a tunnel and, oh, isn't it so clever? No, it's not clever. <laughs> it's never been fucking clever. It's this is it's fucking stupid. I mean, don't get me Go wrong; ahead. they're pretty used to the horror sequels through the eighties. Would do this; they would bring back the surviving characters and usually off them in the first parts of this was a eighties trope, right? Uh, okay, Friday the Thirteenth like does it. Halloween, but from, we get no, maybe not yeah. so much Halloween to be honest. Friday two does it. Yes, yeah. but here is the thing, Paul. Like you said, we gave a shit about these characters. Yep. So here's the thing. This movie is so fucking stupid. <laughs> the third movie already did the hard part, which was get you invested in the yeah, characters. it did. Yep. Why not just spread the kills out, sprinkle in a couple more new characters, just one or two, keep Kincaid and Joey throughout the movie. Till the and end, Kristen. at least. Yeah. Yeah. Kill them sporadically throughout yep. the movie, and then you don't have to worry about establishing characters. Well, then we don't have enough film for 90 minutes. That's the reason. <laughs> right? But like, it's like they shot themselves in the foot. They're like, oh, well, that movie already did all the hard work for us. Well, fuck that. Yep. Bam! <laughs> we want to be hobbled. Uh, Why? Kincaid's, the character, the guy who played Kincaid, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, he was pretty dark on the docker, the, the Never Sleep Again. <laughs> so saying, yeah. you know, the one brother makes it through. A, right. a film, and they kill me off in the first ten fucking minutes. I was not pleased at all about that, which is fair, you know, because it is that's fair. quite an iconic thing to to have an African American actor live at that stage in yes, in a horror correct. film. So, not only that, but th- these characters were beloved. Yep, it's like it just it's like it's like Alien Three, where it's like ah fuck, oh, it, fuck. just kill them. Yeah, you know, it's just, it, and it's not to the same degree because they're nowhere near in the same league of film, you know. But but it's the same thing. Is like you got something that worked. Yep. Ride it, even it just as not out of a, 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 a artistic sense, just out of being fucking lazy. Why do the work yourself? You, New yeah. Line owns the fucking characters. Yep, uh, I get it. I'm disappointed to to change tack for a moment that to hear Rennie Harlan is such a prick that he does it surprise you? I don't know. I kind of liked his output of films. I'm a deep blue sea apologist, you know. Uh, not all of his films, You're don't get me wrong. The long Die kids, Hard to Die Harder. Don't apologies. mind that film. Certainly don't love it the way that my co-host Wayne does. But yeah, uh, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> long Kiss Goodnight. You know all these kind of films. I, I think they're all yeah. pretty good. So 
and I don't. He was also much younger back then. Yeah, so. but that's I'm not saying he's still yeah. a piece of shit now. But it's 40 years ago. Yeah, true. I, obviously, uh, his relationship with Gina Davis didn't last. So, yeah. I I ranted. I raved. I want to speak to some positives here. I think the opening lighting and shadow work of On Freddy is pretty fantastic. I think the the opening of the movie, Freddy feels like a threat again. You shouldn't have buried me. I'm not dead. There's, that's actually, it's not funny. It's menacing the mm -hmm. way he delivers that. Now, on the negative side, all throughout these movies, and I did register, I clocked this as a kid, but it, I, I didn't really have words for it at the time, but I do now as an adult. The Freddy voice from movie to movie and from scene to scene is not consistent because I think they, these were set slap together movies that in certain scenes, he has a completely modulated, deepened, gravelly, like, like synthesized voice, basically. They're taking Robert England and they're pitch correcting and modulating his voice to get it scary. Right. And then, uh, and then like the next scene or the next cut, it's just Robert England's voice. And then in the next cut, it's modulated, but it's not modulated the same way. And it just goes into the shoddy filmmaking right. behind these movies because it's never consistent, not just from movie to movie, from scene to scene from movie to movie. And it really bothered me this time. And this movie was like the most egregious of it, where it felt slapped together. Where I'm like, it was like his voice would change pitch and go in and out of between dark and scary Freddy voice and just Robert England voice in the same scene, just moment to moment. They just didn't consistently. I didn't pick it I up. I think it's just they didn't have post-production time. I didn't pick it up. Clearly, I wasn't paying close enough attention to that. So, but fair play. All right. This is the worst dream script and the worst creative use of dreams in the series so far. And it absolutely shoehorns these people's one-dimensional fears and singular hobbies or traits to foreshadow their death. There's, why would a woman, why would that girl find a fucking cockroach and a bag of chips? Why? Just be, and it's an amazing death. But why did she have to find a fucking cockroach? Because we have to establish she likes to work out, and even though she's eating junk food, she likes to work out. <laughs> she's young enough to get away with that. Yeah, she loves to work out, and she's a terrified of cockroaches. So what's going to happen? She's going to be working out in a dream, and something horrible is going to happen, and then she's going to become a bug. All right. Well, I'm going to count it with some positives. I think that sequence, <laughs> that, that death is incredible. One of the best that in the whole series and the best in the film by a long way. Sheila's uh, You Want to Suck Face Death, also very good, uh, but not oh. as good as that one. As much as it's simple and, and straightforward, but it looks good. I think some of the camera... Okay, hang on. Time out, time yeah. out. Can you explain to me the magical uh, Back to the Future contraption Sheila builds and how it works? No. <laughs> <laughs> but that's used in the end to defeat Freddy. Well, she's, she she's the nerd, something. right? So she's the nerd, and that's therefore that's her power. She's nerdy and she's smart. She's a blurred, Paul. She's a black nerd, yep. which was exceptionally rare at the time. And and I think she's the first one to fucking die. Was she? And what a suck face. Yeah, and then... Well, no, yeah, no, she's not the first one. All the uh, Dream Warriors died first. No, oh, yes, I'm sorry. The, the actual characters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, and I really think some of the camera work in this film is great. There's that scene when uh, Kristen takes is drugged by her mom and she's trying to get you know stay awake and she's walking through a bedroom and it's swirling above her head around and around. That's really out there and, and beyond the ken of normal filmmaking, in the, particularly in this kind of shitty horror film. So that's I think that's what Brittany Harlan brings, which I appreciate. 
Okay, here's here's some positives for me. I'm with you on that. I think there's a couple of set pieces that are some of the best of the series. One, uh, the the cockroach death, I think, is very, very effective. Uh, I think that Lisa Wilcox, who plays Alice, good. beats Tuesday night seven days a week and twice <laughs> on Sundays. Um, this is where they retcon it to where the house turned out to be Freddie's house and they moved people in to pretend that, and, and, and this is, this is uh, I, I, one another thing that got my eyes rolling is in every single one of these fucking movies by this point, the parents are slipping Mickey's to their kids. Yep. Like, it's just like, don't drink or eat anything your parents give you children. If you live on Elm street or anywhere near it. Yeah. The, I, I will say this negative and then positives. Okay. One more, one more negative. And one more positive. <laughs> Negative, I think this is the first one that actually sucks. I think this movie sucks. I think this is not a good, it's just not a good movie. I think it's not a good nightmare movie. I think this movie is not good. I think it is funny when Bob Shea shows up as the history teacher. I do think that the movie theater slash diner scene is incredibly well done. Where her fear is, she's going to work at that diner to the day she dies and she goes into it and she meets herself as an old lady yep yep and she's still working there and then we get the soul pizza which is simultaneously fucking stupid (laughs) yeah and uh a very effective special effect Mm. i think that's exceptionally well done i think it's fucking idiotic and i think it's masterfully well done <laughs> it's like i jostle I, I just jostle between i think it's one of the dumbest things ever and one of the like neatest things at the same time uh else hey alice want some soul food like that's so fucking stupid <laughs> this is where we're getting into pun for absolutely and it's has. not yep. good puns but the time loop element where they get in the car and they're going to go try to rescue Debbie and then they, or whoever it was they're trying to rescue, and then they're back in the fucking thing. And then at a certain point, they start catching on that they're in a time loop. She's like, we're in a fucking dream. <laughs> I thought that was so well done and so effective because the movie, where the movie work, where this movie works is it lets the audience in on the dream before it lets the characters in on it where it's intentionally telling you this is a dream. It's giving us knowledge the characters don't have in an effective way. Whereas the first one was all about blurring that line. So we and the characters didn't know we're more in their perspective. We're more in their shoes. Some of the worst uh, nightmare movies, you you know, and it takes the characters fucking forever to figure out they're in a dream. Mm-hmm. This one, I think, is the best at doing that shitty thing in the most entertaining way, which is we, we know for a while it's a dream, but we're enjoying some of the dream aspects, uh, you know, apart from uh, her brother fighting Freddie invisibly, which was only done because they ran a budget in time. That makes sense then why his death is so terrible. Because, you know, what? it was supposed to be an elevator death. Well, and they couldn't figure out the special effects and they ran out of money. And this movie was put into theaters before it was finished. What? The movie was put into theaters before post-production was finished. Wow. They okay. had a certain date, so they just stopped filming stuff, pretty much slapped it together, and put it right in theaters. That's a Bob Shea choice. That's why, it, that's why it feels like shit when you're watching it. You're like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel finished. It, it feels 
like a series of music videos that nobody bothered having establishing shots in between. And, and some of the establishing shots, if you look at them, they're not even locked. They didn't even lock the camera because they're just taking pickup shots and using them as establishing Get out shots. to the house, get a shot for me. We need this. Yeah, okay. Correct. Right. <laughs> I made a film like that. <laughs> Wasn't worth four and a half million. Didn't go around the world. Yeah. Well, well, so tell, convince these people that I'm wrong and why this is just such a fantastic film. It's not fantastic at all. I, I agree. But I did have fun with it. I think I obviously had a lot more fun with it than you did. I think the deaths in this film are generally pretty good. As much as I agree with you 100% that killing off your established characters with goodwill is, is, is a silly move, this film played for keeps and killed everybody quickly. So you're like, all right, you know, as in most films, no one's safe. But I think the real standout for me is Alice. Alice's transition yeah, from being this really... I mean, her makeup's very good early on. They somehow convince you that she's a pretty dowdy, not attractive person. And as the film goes yeah. on, it's very subtle with each death. And she gains in power and she gains in confidence. They are, they're either allowing her natural beauty to come through or her natural strength of character to come through. Or she's acting that way and she's actually there's a really good makeup on her either way it works that metaphor for her uncovering her mirror with all the photos of all her friends you know very rarely of herself and then yeah. being able to see herself with all her friends in her i think that's also pretty good and pretty subtle for this kind of film so <laughs> yeah, I, I think that works you know what's not subtle in that scene is the wig that they put on her stunt double right when they're doing the nunchuck sequence yeah. but it's very fucking clear not that her. is not Lisa uh, Wilcox or whoever plays Alice. And I, uh, I like her. Yeah, I, I like her. That that the, when she takes Freddie on, she feels like an actual threat. And also, I like the relationship with her and her brother. It's it's quite sweet and something you don't see a lot of in particularly in eighties films or even really today. Siblings are meant to be at each other's throat. So, given their dad again, as is the motif through the Nightmare on Elm Street, is so shit. A drunk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Although he does redeem himself in the in the next film to some degree. Um, yeah. the the brother is protecting her and they do a good job of looking after each other which I really liked as well so yeah there's some things here I do enjoy and I do like and I'm sorry I don't hate this film says the guy so, who says I hate everything you hate mostly everything <laughs> um, this was the first one where I was like boy I'm not I'm not engaged mm -hmm. I'm not really being entertained hold on to your hats then <laughs> But there are moments that shine bright. I just wish it was more cohesive as a whole piece. I wish they hadn't killed established characters. All the things I said. Um, somehow, though, Paul, somehow, Linnea Quigley still manages to show her tits in this movie, even though she isn't actually in the movie. That has to be some kind of fucking is she the Is she the nurse? No, she's when the one swimming. the, the end. Swimming. Oh, the end. No, no. When Freddie, when okay, when they do the horrible dream master nursery rhyme, which feels so fucking shoehorned <laughs> into this movie, it doesn't even make sense. It's not even a good rhyme. Now I The way you defeat Freddy now is you just have to show him his reflection in a mirror. 
Makes and sense. not be afraid. Look, that's a, that's what overcomes fiery dog piss, Jason. How are you not uh, aware of this? When he rips open his shirt and all the souls he devours start coming through his chest. There's one where the person, uh, like, kind of, like, upward-facing dog through his chest and right. through, like, the, the plastic or whatever, and you see just tits. You see just giant tits coming through his skin, and it's, that's Linnea Quigley. Oh, okay. Because her husband, would, at the time, did the special effects for the movie. And if you know Linnea Quigley, that woman loved nothing more than to show her tits in every movie she's ever yep. been in. yep. And it was just remarkable that she's topless in a movie that I don't even think she's credited. <laughs> Holy shit. Like she was, but the behind the scenes for that is what they did was they did a giant uh, replica of the chest, like giant, because they had to be way more than full size. And they had basically people on ladders and like scaffolding behind it, pushing themselves through. But the whole scaffolding, everything toppled over and they killed, almost killed everybody to get that effect wow okay yeah going, was, going above was, and beyond was, <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> very scary uh there's footage of it i think on youtube some camcorder behind the scene footage of how they did the effect and it was pretty well done uh if you had to give this one a score out of 10 what would you give it and where does it rank uh it ranks for me as number four of the week i'm giving it a flat six out of ten this is going to be my number five Ooh. for the week, and I'm going to give it a 3.5 <laughs> out of 10. This movie stunk. This is the first, this is the second of the dream arc, the dream warrior arc or whatever it's called, and of, the, of that, you know, trilogy within the series, and already it fucking sucks. So uh, I'm going to piss people off by saying it, but I don't, I don't care. I'd rather watch... Uh, uh, Nightmare on Gay Street again and again and again no. be, because at least that's been embraced by a community of people who it was meant to hurt. This is just, to me, It's this is like a soulish cash grab. All the right. best thing they did, the best decision they made though, Paul, and I will agree with you here, is if you had such a shitty, makeshift, underdeveloped, poorly produced, poorly written script that you were not going to give any time to not put any thought into it whatsoever. It was just a soulish, soulless fucking cash grab. The smartest thing they did was they got a very visually interesting director. There you go. The same could not be said for our next film. <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Child, which currently has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. When it comes to terror, Freddy knows best. <laughs> Now, Freddy delivers. It's a boy! I don't know how, but now he's back! His greatest masterpiece. Better not dream and drive! <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. The party just starts! Rated R. Starts Friday, August 11th at theaters everywhere. Dream Child was directed by Stephen Hopkins, who can fuck himself right up the ass. The <laughs> wow. screenplay by Leslie Boehm, if you want to call it a screenplay, and a story by John Skip and Craig Spector. It is based on characters by Wes Craven. I'm sure he doesn't want that known. And Brian Helgeland and Bruce Wagner. It is the triumphant return of Kelly Joe Minter, last seen in Miracle Mile. This film was released August the 11th, 1989, on a budget of $8 million. Cool. It only brought in $22.1 million. 
Lore of now in Diminishing Returns. The dream life of an unborn child leads to the souls of an Ohio town being trapped inside the rotting dream flesh of a local pervert until they're vomited out <laughs> by poetry. <laughs> Freddie varies his routine by somehow staking a claim on Alice's gestating baby in the most confusing sequel yet. I'm interested before you go on your rant because I will join you in the rant this time around, Jason. Stephen Hopkins, why is why do you hate him so? What yeah, what most young people don't realize, okay, is that due to a white light bulb shortage of the mid '80s, most American bedrooms had blue lights. So anytime you see a movie from the mid '80s and two people fucking blue light, that's not actually just some weird '80s aesthetic choice. Seriously, that is a True to life. No, Paul. <laughs> no, it's not true. Like, what? How is this possible? <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> it's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> I mean, thank you. This movie begins with one of the least titillating sex scenes I've ever seen. It is, it, it, what happened was somebody saw Top Gun. Right. Probably a bunch of people. And they fucking stole the sex scene from Top Gun and chose to open the movie, the most pro-life slasher film ever <laughs> made. This is an anti-choice, anti-abortion slasher movie. If that makes any sense to you, then you are streets ahead of where I'm at. Because <laughs> apparently we've got no problem mowing down teenager after teenager after teenager. We have no problem merchandising child-sized sleeping bags with a pedophile, <laughs> murderous, dream pedophile on them, but God forbid somebody contemplate an abortion. Hey, Scotty. Jesus, man. Yep, what do you think of it that way? I hear where you're coming from. Uh, this, is, this, this is a morally deranged film. It's a, it's a the film. The messaging here, the ideas here, the rules here, th th this... This movie's a fucking mess. Yep. 100% agree. It's terrible. <laughs> the only thing, let's just get the one positive out of the way. The only thing it has going for it is a couple of creative kills. Other than that, it is straight garbage from beginning to end. And this is, you know what this is, Paul? This is Nightmare in Elm Street, The Suckling. Well, I actually had a, a, a comparison to a scene where in one of the dreams where Freddy gets birth and then runs rampant. I'm like, it's alive all over again. No, th that's exactly what that is. Yep. That birth sequence is almost shot for shot. It's alive. Yep. There's, I mean, they have completely run out of fucking gas. They're stealing from Top Gun. They're stealing from It's Alive of all places. <laughs> and they're just, this movie sucks, Paul. It does. This movie sucks. Explain to the me how Dan, explain to me how Dan died. <laughs> Because it's Alice is dreaming his death and getting to see it. And then, so Dan falls asleep at the wheel, but then someone says, you weren't even asleep when Dan died. Like, what? How is she seeing this then? What is she, how does she know? What's going on? She's psychically linked to her baby's dream, and the baby is dreaming her, his dad's death. Is that it? But he's, he's, I believe that the baby is dreaming Dan's dream. But it's very sketchy as to when is Dan asleep? Because at some point, when you think he's going to die, right? When, oh, this, this is a terrible, this is awful. 
He's speeding on the highway trying to get to Alice. Freddie appears in the passenger seat with the champagne to celebrate high school graduation. Is it high school graduation or the birth of his child? And the birth of his child. Because, no, they, they're, they're graduating from high school in this movie. I think. Isn't it? Or is that the last one? I don't know. Where's the one with the fucking comic book guy? It's this one's the one with the yes, fucking comic book guy. Yes, this is the comic book guy. guy. So this is where they're graduating from high school. And a, and a scene where you have a group of characters talking to each other, including one character who was edited out of the rest of the film. So when you look at it, they're all laughing and talking and taking photos for graduation. There's somebody there. Who was who's not even in the rest of this right. movie? Okay, and then they edit it, and that person just fucking gone, and it's, they're never brought up again. And and they're in the in the middle of the scene, they just disappear. And you're like, wait a minute, what? I mean, this is this, this is a hastily thrown together movie. So they're they're they've broken into the school they just graduated from to have an after hours pool party in celebration of graduating. That's right. Yeah, that's she's not there because okay. she's working at the diner still. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he has champagne to celebrate, I think, the birth no, of her right. child. Yes, yeah. So Dan and has, I thought you meant Freddie had this. Champagne. Yep, okay. She's got some kind of run-in with Freddie, and so he's like, oh, shit, I got to get to her. He gets in his car. Everybody's still at the party. Is she rings, he get, does she? He, get, he gets in his truck. He's racing to get to her. Freddie appears, and is like, you shouldn't drink and drive, Dan. Opens the champagne which is acid somehow, pours the acid on his arm, uses his now detached arm as a seatbelt. <laughs> the, the, the razor blade glove is the clicking piece. Yep. It's like, don't forget to buckle up, Dan. <laughs> Dan then crashes through the windshield as if he'd been in a drunk driving accident. But in, instead of going through the front of the truck, the windshield, he goes through the glass back into the pool area, but now nobody's there. Even though it's just been moments since he left. He doesn't question any of this. His clothes are in tatters for some reason, and he's got, like, cartoon soot all over himself. Like, he just got blown up by, like, the Roadrunner. <laughs> he then finds a random fucking motorcycle that's not his with random fucking keys in it, which is colored like Freddy. Turns the motorcycle on, starts speeding even faster down the highway, and then we get fuel injection. <laughs> I feel the need, the need for speed, which is another Rip Top off. Gun yep. reference. And then he slowly is transformed into the bike, and the effect is actually kind of really well good. done. K and B did this, the effects here. Because it's really fucking gruesome. Mm -hmm. It's very gruesome. So much so that they edited it way down. If you've ever seen the uncut version, oh, right. no, I haven't. It, it's even gorier. Because why would you seek out this film to watch in this uncut version? <laughs> they got like an X rating from that scene. They were like, you can't fucking do that. Like, they just ripped this guy apart, and he becomes part of the motorcycle. And then he is going to be hit by a truck. Then he wakes up, and he's actually been in his real truck the whole time, yep. apparently, asleep, but he's made it across town. <laughs> Just in, in time to be blown up right in front of the diner where Alice is waiting mm -hmm. for him. Explain any of that to me. Uh, and I the can't. guy who gets 
out of the truck is, of course, dressed like Freddy. I was like, I didn't see him. I didn't see him. And it's like, did, did can Freddy open wormholes? How did this guy sleep drive from across town to go pick her up from work? It makes no fucking sense. And it was the baby's dream glad you that explained linked that to me. her to his dream. I just, it does, like, did the baby fall asleep and draw his dad into his dream? And Freddie is using his dreams to kill people. Does he have the Kristen power? Does the baby have Clearly. Kristen's power, which is now inside of Alice? Are you following, listener? Uh, yeah, good luck. And so he's accidentally drawing people into his dreams where Freddie can get him. I think that's what we're supposed to gather. All right. Well, it's a better explanation than I came up with. So well played to this is written the, or based the story by Skip Inspector, who are two pretty big uh, co-horror authors who wrote a whole bunch of horror novels, splatterpunk horror novels at the end of the 80s and into the 90s. Mm. So they were this was their heyday. Pretty glad this is the only film they ever bothered to write. I think they've written something together again, like 2015, some tiny budgeted film. But they oh. stayed away for 25 years from the Hollywood system <laughs> or weren't allowed back near it because this is just, as you've described, and probably it's going to be hard to talk about this one because I'm almost bereft of, of criticisms for it by this stage. Whereas the next film, I can criticize till the cows come home. This one is just so fucking dumb. It's so silly. I don't care about anyone. Alice's nope. character is is nothing like what she was in the transition she went through in the last film. Completely She's, different person. Yeah, it's uh, helpless. No continuity or consistency. Yep. The only thing this film has going for it is it does, I think, has some nice directorial flourishes and some good special effects, including practical effects. Other than that, storyline, plot line, acting wise, character development wise, mythology wise, it's all ratchet. Alice goes from being a empowered female character by the end of that film, which I didn't really care for, but at least I could give it that, well, right? There's some I did. Sort of character I was arc. in with her yeah. in that film. Yep. I like her as an actress, but I'm just saying overall, obviously, I just shit on the film, didn't care for it. But that movie at least had that going for it. This movie, again, takes surviving characters from the last movie to unceremoniously kill them off very quickly into the film or retcon them so now suddenly because alice is pregnant she's in hysterics for the entire length of the film none of the strength none of the dream warrior abilities none of the abilities of her friends nothing that was gained from the last film has any impact on this movie whatsoever other than dan lived long enough to knock her up yep that's it well, Rennie Harlan had a bunch of evocative images. So now that's all we need. That's all we're aiming for. We just for. need some. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Some puns and some uh, weird images. That's it. We're good. And the thing is, like, yeah, it's diminished returns to the box. And still, things still made $25 million on an $8 million budget. It still was way still in success. the black. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so, why we get know, what we get next, which is probably the big punishment for our sins. But this film is, is, is shit. <laughs> it's really, really terrible. So much so, I don't really want to give it any more time, Jason. I just think it, everyone, even the most ardent Nightmare fan, Freddy fan, would acknowledge this film and the next one are shit. I can't imagine anyone who defends this as being any other than stupid fun. At a certain point, if you're not going to give me a story, if you're not going to give me a character, then at least give me the ability to look at the gags, the kill gags, and enjoy those, enjoy the craftsmanship of those. And they, they, cut, they cut all of the hard work of the people who gave a shit, which was the special effects team, 
they cut it all out of the movie. Yep. So all you're left with is the is the script, which they clearly didn't give a shit about. Let, let's finish on this note. How does Freddy die in this movie, Paul? I can't even remember. Freddy has been feeding somehow. Psychically. Literally. But psychically, but literally feeding the souls through the umbilical cord of Alice's friends and family <laughs> into this uh, fetus, into this unborn child. So all of the Freddy powers are somehow in Jacob to the point that they got this, the little kid who Sam Neill would threaten to gut in Jurassic Park, which I guess is a triumphant <laughs> return. They got that kid to be the unborn child, but slightly a little bit older for some reason. And for he says, reason. he tricks Freddy and goes, hey, Kruger. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> and then his face becomes Freddy's face. Like he's burned like Freddy. Now here's the thing that doesn't make any sense. Just because he has dream powers doesn't mean he would be a burn victim. Well, you know, trying to impress dad. I can and change the way I want. But Freddy's not his dad. Dan's his dad. Freddy seems to have adopted him pretty hardcore. And he, he uses his fingers as, as knives. He's like, uh, I'm bored with her. Uh, I want to I learn from you. Teach me. And Freddy stops killing Alice for some reason, which gives, <laughs> and she's like, the nun, who's his mom, Freddy's mom, <laughs> goes, now, Jacob. And Jacob vomits. And the vomit is like some sort of weird Play-Doh. And it sticks to Freddy. And it starts drawing out all of the souls again <laughs> out of Freddy. And then the souls become like burn vomit tentacles that start whipping out of his body from these different angles until he's ripped apart, goes back to suckling form. Goes back to it's alive form and then um, turns into a ball of light just as Jacob turns into a ball of light. Jacob goes back into Alice's immaculate womb and the bastard son of a hundred maniacs goes into uh, uh, Amanda Kruger, Sister Mary Helen's womb. And then we get a very bad uh, miniature shot of all of these different doors shutting and she keeps screaming because Freddie's like coming back out of her. And so she screams and a door explodes and then another one shuts. And then, and we're going down this hallway, like mystery science theater 3000. <laughs> and it's just very clearly like our little RoboCop puppet at the very like little miniature. Someone's got a, a popsicle stick and it's just dangling around. <laughs> at the end. And the door finally shuts. And then that's the end. And they're all celebrating around a fountain. And it's all in diffused gauze, white, and then pan over from the wishing well. Reflection. Uh, 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 yeah. And we see little girls again going, one, two, Freddy's coming for you. And you would think they would continue on with this trilogy, and, but we never see these characters again. <laughs> Which I would have said would be a huge relief after watching this film, but then we get what we oh. get. And I'll tell you what, I did get upset with the next one. <laughs> Well, I'm about to lose my voice from all my ranting and raving. I'm going to kind of pitch it to you. So let's just talk about it. Let's talk about 1991's... Ooh, do we have to give a score? Well, well that fucked up. You fucked up. Not you that. You fucked up. up. 
You fucked up. You fucked up. Oh shit. Yeah, you're right. What what was the best kill of this one? I think it's Mark. Uh I think the the take on me, aha, death sequence, I think is other than the super Freddy part where he's like, Super Freddy. I think everything else about that kill is great when the color drains out of the paper. It's very clever. i I thought it was clever. Uh, I liked it. I, I give this movie a three out of ten. It's a six. Uh, I, it's your sixth best. Yeah, it's also yeah. my sixth best of the week. Slash. No, wait. Be no, fifth best. Sorry, fifth best for me. I still like it more than the uh, Freddy's Revenge, which I just hate with a passion. Oh no, Paul. Yeah, uh, fifth best of the week for me. I give it two and a half. Just edging out uh, Freddy's Revenge, and the best death of the week for me is Dan's death. Just that whole extended bike sequence turning into the bike is pretty spectacular. I think. Okay, all right. Now moving on officially. <laughs> we are moving on to 1991's If the Last Movie Was Pro-Life, This One Is an Abortion on Film. I'm talking about Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, which currently has a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. Welcome to a brand new nightmare. Time to start over again. A psychedelic nightmare. Let's trip out. A 3D nightmare. I'm not fooled by this thing you saw. The final nightmare. Freddy's dead. The final nightmare. They've saved the best for last. Rated R. Starts Friday, September 13th at a theater near you. Paul, I don't have any idea how to pronounce this woman's last name. I've covered her before because she was the director of Tank Tank Girl. Tatalay? Is it? Talale, Talale, Rachel Talale. It was produced by Robert Shea with a screenplay by Michael DeLuca with a story by Rachel (laughs) Talale. It is based on characters by Wes Craven. It is the non-triumphant return, but it is the cinematic debut in binge movies of someone from the Zane bloodline. I'm talking about Billy Zane's incredibly less talented sister, Lisa, Lisa Zane. Zane didn't realize I was related. <laughs> fundamentally worst actresses in the history of film. Yeah, yeah, not out of place in this film, that's for sure. This this movie was released on September the 13th, 1991. If you had told me it was released September the 11th, 1991, <laughs> I would have thought it was more fitting because this is a terrorist attack on on fans of good taste. This this movie had a almost eleven million dollar budget oh and somehow God. looks worse than the original. It made thirty four point nine million dollars, and every last goddamn cent was because of the the 3D. stunt, the 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 stunt of the three D. And you have to come see how Freddy's going to die. That's it. That's it. This 100% movie right. was a marketing stunt. That is it. Funny man Freddy probably also molested his daughter, who kills him, and the whole franchise while ripping off Twin Peaks. In one of the absolute worst sequels of all time, Freddy is now in a dystopian future where he's killed all the kids around, so no, so now needs to tap into his never-before-mentioned actual child to help him break out of Springfield. <laughs> Springwood, sorry. Because that's now a thing. You may not believe in the relationship between Tank Girl and her tank, but I do believe in the relationship between Freddy and his glove. <laughs> this is a 100% cartoon parody of itself to the point that I mentioned the Roadrunner and Wile e, e. Coyote earlier. There's a Acme sequence where Freddy gets a bed of nails out of a fucking box 
and drags it across screen and then goes, I'm getting too old for this kind of thing. And it's like, oh, fuck off. I was at fuck off stage at the graphic saying, all kids have died mysteriously or suicided in an entire basically city slash area. And all the adults have, have gone psychotic as a result. Like, what the fuck? How is this a thing? Yeah. How is this even a thing? This goes back to what I've said for five years in this podcast. Early 90s movies, by and large, look like shit. I have no idea how low-budget movies in 1984 look better than medium-sized budget movies in 1990. But it's a fact. It is a fact. If you look at the Drop Ted Freds, if you look at Heart and Soul, if you look at fucking uh, uh, Cool World, any of these movies, the film stock is shit. I, I don't know if they just stopped making good film. Summer Summer School looks better than this. <laughs> Carl Reiner's Summer School has more depth of field and color and texture and is a cleaner print. I'd rather watch fucking Summer Rental with John Candy or The Great Outdoors. Yeah. The, the, these low-budget comedies from the fucking 80s look better than whatever they were shooting on in the 90s. I don't know what the fuck happened to filmmaking from like until Tarantino, basically. I don't get it. Yeah, look, I think you're right. And I hadn't really given it to the whole of the 90, early 90s film Uwa, but I think this film in particular just looks terrible. It's blocked terribly. It's shot terribly. It's acted horrendously. This is a very poorly directed film. It is. And well, you know why? I mean, I don't think Rachel Talalale has ever directed anything beyond these two films. Like, she basically sunk her own ship with. I don't know. How the hell did she get Tank Girl after this? That's just astounding to me. Uh, she was a production assistant at New Line, basically. Worked her way up from basically being an administrative assistant. Right. Then worked worked as a PA on all the movies. And essentially, Bob Shea said, you know, you've been here the whole time. And she she went for it. She was like, I've been here the whole time. Um, I should get to make the last one. He was like, well, yeah, you should. Well, because they knew, they knew that this was money in the bank, Paul, because... Essentially, they had rung this dry, right? The Freddy franchise is so out of gas, but Freddy is still an iconic character, especially at this stage. And so none of the slasher movies translated well at all to the late 80s, let alone early 90s. Yep. All of the late 80s, early 90s entries in all of these fucking franchises are garbage. Yep. And the zeitgeist had moved on. People didn't give a shit anymore. And, you know, you have, you have Terminator 2 out the same fucking year. And, in fact, when they did the 3D effects for this movie, the same special effects post-production crew that worked on Terminator 2 worked on this movie, and they accidentally sent them a reel of the T-1000 back instead of a print of their own movie. And they got to fucking watch uh, the T-1000 footage before anybody else did. Wow, she okay. Admits, she'll admit to now. They didn't admit to it at the time because they would have gotten sued. But <laughs> they just played the real. They, they got the film print of T2. Well, that's a good point. That, there's a film that looks good from the early 90s, Terminator 2. So it's not every film, but yeah. No, but I think mid-budget films yep. and below, for some reason, look like shit when low-budget movies of the 80s looked way better. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's lighting. I don't know what the fuck happened. Change of film I stock, maybe. No I don't know. Cameras. Clue. Yeah, I, I, it has maybe, yeah, maybe it's Cameron. I mean, compare this to the original Terminator from 1984. Mm -hmm. Terminator looks better. 
Yeah. Compare this to the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Compare this to Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> it loses everything. It lo- we're obviously on the it same page. Yeah, this is horrible to look at. It's, it, I, I just, it's. I wish that was his only you, problem. The whole, the whole story here, like this idea of let's just have Freddy have been so pervasively successful at killing not just the Elm Street. When did that change? Now he doesn't just kill Elm Street kids, kids that are basically from the people that murdered him. Now he can kill yeah. any kid. He has any as kid you, in town. Yeah, as yeah. you have implied, he's become this kind of thing this this disease that he can get from anyone you just happen you just have to be young and where's the cutoff point is it 18 is it 21 is it 37 where is it that freddie can't kill you anymore and and doesn't bother with you he's a pedophile we know that but like <laughs> right. <laughs> right at what point yeah it's like if, if you turn 18 he suddenly loses his murderous attraction to you yeah what, like at what yeah at what point does he not want to rape you and kill you anymore? And, and, and how can they retcon him having a child given the, the events of the last film how has this been added and allowed to be a thing like it's just so bad and and the whole thing is wrapped in this bad bad painfully bad ripoff of twin peaks i've never watched twin peaks so and i might that's not just like an assumption i'm making i've heard the people i think it was Razor or whatever it was, you know, this huge show, David Lynch, huge phenomena, yep. whatever, okay. whatever. And it was in its heyday, and they make these movies quick and dirty, and they just pull shit out of the headlines or out of the zeitgeist and b- traffic in it because they don't have it at this point. For what, It was so sad, Paul, is for one of the most original horror films of all time to devolve to this where they're just borrowing from Top Gun and they're borrowing from... Not borrowing, they're stealing. They're stealing <laughs> from word. David Lynch. <laughs> yeah, they're stealing from Twin Peaks. They're just they're stealing. They're stealing from a uh, 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 broadcast TV soap. I mean, it's fucking sad. It is sad at this point. It's pathetic. What, well, that's the word pathetic. It's pathetic. And that Twin they... Peaks at least is 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 creepy and funny and surreal. As a lot of David Lynch's stuff is, and this stuff is, None of Twin that. Peaks is a very funny show, and they're trying desperately to be funny in this movie, and it's just it's 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 written by her, but it's written by someone who has no sense of comedic taste, and it's acted somehow. They got fucking Yafet Kodo to show up in this. Yeah, he's the only person other than Johnny Depp who they also tricked into being in this movie. The, they are the only two people in this fucking movie who it seems have ever acted before. I know Brecken Meyer is in it, but this is like one of the first things he ever did. For sure. So like Yafet Koto again, just seems like he's in a different movie. It's, mm-hmm. it's Lisa Zane is embarrassing. And I'm going to go so, so far as to say, I think Robert England is bad in this movie. Well, it's, it's a parody now, right? This film leans so far away from its horror roots. Like it's hard to even call this film a horror film. It's a comedy. Yeah. It's a really... Yeah. Bad taste, supposedly black comedy, but it's not funny. It's not entertaining. No. It's just plain stupid. The deaths in this film are all played for yucks, not even in an ironic yeah. sense. They're just dumb. Nope. Like turning into an 8-bit character and bouncing around the room. Like, d- Did anyone think that was going to be scary? Did anyone think that was going to horrify people? What's it's all because on? of the power glove, which, by the way, by 1981... Nobody was using the Nintendo Power Glove. Oh, 91. Yep. So, yep. Yeah, it, it's it's not even a timely reference. 
That's what's so fucking lazy about it. Is that, like to your point, Paul. It's only stupid. It's not timely. It, it's outdated. It's a it's a fucking idiotic joke, but it's an outdated joke. And Lisa Zane's playing a social worker, and her her ability as a professional involves oh, you three kids snuck out. Just take the car and go back. Off you go. Oh, no worries, lady. That's really absolutely, clever professional behavior. Absolutely zero professionalism, zero empathy, zero compassion, zero therapeutic touch. She's a yep. worse <laughs> clinician than fucking Dr. Neil, who who chided his suicide patients. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> this woman is awful. And, and we get the triumphant return of Tom Arnold, last seen in True Lies. Oh, God, who, yeah. Who, it's just like Roseanne and Tom Arnold are the most obnoxious people on the planet. Yep. Wouldn't it be funny if we gave them a cameo? Because they because, were big around Roseanne at the time, right? The TV show. Yeah, and yep. she had butchered the national anthem and was they were just all over the tabloids or whatever. It's it just is some sort of trailer park geek show to look at. And we just got to throw them in this movie Alice for Cooper. a... W- what, yeah, Alice Cooper's Freddy's dad. Why? Because he's Alice Cooper. Like, there, there's no explanation for this. There's no, there's no point to these cameos. There's no, at least Alice Cooper's like a little menacing in his scene, but it doesn't. Do you want us to suddenly feel empathy for Freddy because he was yeah. an abused child? He's still killing animals, which you make us watch. He's still like, he's still a pervert. Like, still it, a bad it guy. Yeah, he's still a bad guy. What, so what's the point of giving him a sad backstory? And then the three D gimmick, Jason. How about we that? We haven't even we haven't even gotten to the dream demons. Oh, the the worm the, things. The spermazoa again. This movie's obsession. Yep. With spermazoa. I th- I thought his powers. Okay, didn't his abilities basically come from he was evil in life. And he felt uh, this miscarriage of justice, which isn't actually true, but <laughs> uh, right. the the fear, the anger, the resentment, the rage, the 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 evil that was perpetrated against him, because the townspeople, the parents' actions were also evil. Yep. The the evil and the secret and the cover up, combined with him being this evil, horrible person somehow allowed a a lingering permutation of his spirit to live on in the afterlife and, and and it's given him some kind of entree to the dreams of children that's all we needed right is, is we didn't need a full-blown explanation of dream demons appeared to him oh. and it ties into greek mythology and they gave him magic powers so he could <laughs> Who the fuck cares? This comes back to what I was saying earlier, that they wrote themselves into so many different corners that to have another film in the franchise, they had to add another layer over the top. And so we get his child and we get these dream demon or sperm, sperm if you want to call them that. We, we, <laughs> it just, it makes zero sense at all. Even in the mythology of the film, the last couple of films have completely gone off the rails and they just don't care anymore. It's whatever, like you're saying, whatever was popular at the time, or whatever might get some traction based on when we're making this film, even if it's passed by the time it's released. Just throw that at the wall. We'll see what sticks. Who cares? People are coming because Freddy is going to die in this movie. Yep. Who cares? Oh, and maybe the 3D thing, which yep. is watching which it is now a- is one of the most egregiously yeah. terribly shot things <laughs> in the history of cinema. But it's just a it's another gimmick to get asses in seats. Yep. 
because they know this thing's out of gas. We're not, we think just that Freddie's dying is going to be the draw, but we're not really sure based on our most recent returns if that's even going to be enough. Oh, but it's also going to be in 3D, you know? And it's like, oh, there's everything about this is so tacked on. And I don't understand for the life of me. Every fucking horror franchise did this. They waited till the last goddamn movie where they were going to actually supposedly kill yeah. the guy. <laughs> then explain to you by completely retconning the entire series well it was actually the cult of thorn and he's oh. possessed by sam Hine, yeah yeah sam heen uh and these druids have been controlling him the whole time since he was a child apparently and oh well he's actually this slug creature that <laughs> uh you have to devour a heart and you'll become jason Voorhees. Since when? Okay. Well, he's actually possessed by dream demons. Like, why did they feel the need to add on shitty backstory and lore and mythology to yep. the fucking end? To over-explain it. To over to oh, that whole time that it's he was over. This, yeah, I know. I don't get it. <laughs> it's over. Why are you? Why are we? Why are you giving us an origin at the fucking end of the series? Grady. When we've had. How many origins for Freddy now? How many origins? Every movie is a different origin for the Too guy. many is, I think, the fair to say. At least two too many. Maybe three too many. <laughs> okay. So it's the, the other crazy thing is we've established the fact that Dream Warriors has to have happened probably in the 90s. Let's yep. say 1990 just to be for whatever. Just Conservative. Make the fuck up. Yeah. This movie comes out in 1991, right? True. The opening tells us it's been 10 years. It's 10 years in the future from the last film. Right. So we're at least early 2000s. Now, now Freddy's Dead is supposed to take place somewhere between 2001 and 2003, probably. Yep. 2004. Yep. At most. Why is it necessary that it's been 10 years? Because we have to, that's how long it's taken Freddy to chew through everybody in the Springwood local area in the entire state of Chicago or whatever the hell it is. It's Ohio. Ohio, sorry. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Is it possible? This is a very cynical viewpoint. That the reason why they went back to Springwood and made it a ghost town is because then they could just shoot on a lot. Yeah. And they didn't have to have extras and they didn't have to pay people and they didn't have to have characters. I think that's entirely possible. <laughs> and then they just wrote that into the script of, well, it's a ghost town now. Why? Because well, we've got eleven and a half million dollars, that biggest budget we've ever had, but we really need to cut back because we've got to pay for the three D post conversion. Correct. You know? Correct. I there's no other reason in this movie for them to even fucking be in Springwood. Other than I think I for somehow now the claim is that Freddy's like geo locked to Springwood, which I guess kind of makes sense because that's Does where it? he was aggrieved. <laughs> but why? Why like and then <laughs> There is like one kind of slightly cool thing when he, because it's this, it's actually a clever line almost where he's confronting his daughter and he come, he goes, every town has an Elm Street. Right. Be because at least in America, every town has an Elm Street. And that at least kind of makes sense. That, is, that at least is a kind of a cool, spooky, scary, like, Oh, now he's like going to be set loose on the world. He, you know, he's gone beyond Springwood or whatever. But nothing comes of it. He, it so it doesn't matter. 
what, what comes of it is he ends up appearing in the bottom of a, a halfway house for wayward teens and is beaten to death with a baseball bat by Yafet <laughs> That's it. It's hard to believe, That's isn't it? That's it. <laughs> it's like, you know, like the, the story's not getting bigger. It's getting smaller, Paul. That's what's so fucking sad. Well, why? But then, and then the final salt in the wound, Jason. Freddie's dead. Hooray. Excellent. Yeah. Lisa Zane will go on to, to acting glory. We then go out on a montage of better moments from previous Nightmare on Elm Street films. What better way to remind your audience about how shit a film they've just sat through Correct. than to show them superior moments from all of these other films? Because every other film in this franchise, as far as I'm concerned, is superior to Correct. this piece of shit. Correct. This, this is an absolutely terrible viewing experience. Well, I would like to nominate it, if you're not going to, <laughs> For the anti-vault, I would like it erased from existence. I'd rather go out with, well, we're going to go out on the way we should go out, at least better than this. But if we have to, in the original run, stop the film somewhere, let's just make fucking Alice's kid be the one that killed Freddy, because that's still better than this by so, so much. How do you feel about sticking it in the (laughs) anti-vault? Um... I'm okay with it. I think we should put it up for vote. When this episode okay. drops, we'll, we'll give it to the binge lord and yep. say, should we add this to the anti-vault? Um, I, for the best kill, I had nothing. No, there is no for good the kill. Best, for the best makeup, I had blah. I had, this is the worst makeup of the entire series, <laughs> one out of ten. <laughs> I think there are two good lines in the entire movie. One is one of the one I said, every town has an Elm Street. That's, that's a good line. The other one, and he delivers it really well. England delivers that really well. The other good line is at the beginning of the movie, it's, it's the only joke that fucking landed. And I'm mad that I laughed at it. But it, <laughs> it was funny. Where the kid's in the dream, and he's like, I don't care what happens. Nothing is going to get me off this bed. And immediately, the whole room catches on fire. <laughs> and he goes... Damn it. And that was, it doesn't belong in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but that was a, that was like setup, punchline, comedic timing, good direction. Like that was a competent joke. Moment. That's all you got. That's all you got. All you have for, for a, what seems to be a three hour movie. This movie is utter, utter horseshit. This is a terrible film. What are you giving it? I'm giving it a one out of ten. Generous. Because I, I laughed. I laughed. <laughs> and uh, this is my worst of the week. The 3D is the drizzling shit. Yeah. Uh, worst of the week for me as well. I'm giving this a 0.3 out of ten. What? <laughs> it's made the hallowed Paul's worst five films covered on uh, binge movies ever. So there wow. we go. Wow. Would you rather watch this or The Suckling again? This probably only because the suckling is so morally bereft on top of everything else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This or going bananas. Oh, it's difficult. Possibly going bananas. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine a double feature of this and then going bananas. There's not enough alcohol in the world that wouldn't kill me to see me over that line. (laughs) 
Well, let's uh, let's move on to one. Apparently, we're going to very strongly disagree on. No, no, very surprising. It's come a little bit closer together than it was before. So I reworked my list, but we won't strongly disagree. But we'll be okay. Okay, okay. Let's move on to the final film of the franchise, uh, apart from the crossover, Freddy versus Jason. (sighs) It's time for this. Is like a soul cleanse. I feel so much better. It's Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which currently has a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. How would you like to join us in the definitive nightmare? I thought you killed Freddy off. They told you he was dead. And since you've been thinking of making it, has anything funny happened? For uh, 10 years, he's been held captive as Freddy in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And now he's got the last laugh. What is he doing? He's decided to cross over out of films into our reality. Wes Craven's new nightmare. Miss me? The film was mercifully directed and written by (laughs) Wes Craven. It is based on characters by Wes Craven, for real this time. It is the triumphant return of Miko Hughes, who uh, Pat hated for some reason. R.A.P. to (laughs) Pat. And God bless Miko Hughes. Well, look after yourself, Pat, in the afterlife. Yeah. Uh, this film was released October. Well, you know, maybe Pat will come back as a weird ghost. Not <laughs> in 3D. <laughs> it was released October 14th. At least this fucking thing came out in Halloween. It was released October 14th, 1994 on a budget of $8 million. Ooh, backward slide. Hmm. This movie only made nineteen point eight million, which is a sin, and it probably barely, if not, broke a profit. The dream world of film comes to life through the bloodlust of horror fans and a studio desperate for a hit. Ooh, I went a bit longer on my synopsis. Here we go. Heather Langenkamp plays herself in this meta sequel that posits the nightmare series has captured the interest of an ancient evil that now wants to take the form of Freddy to slaughter innocents. Wes Craven and Robert Shea also feature as they prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that talent behind the camera does not translate to the same in front of it. Okay. (laughs) Here's the thing. This is the 10th anniversary of Freddy. They're obviously cashing in on that. It's been three, four years. It's, it's, at the time, it seemed like a much longer gap, but now looking back, it's only been a couple years since the terrible uh, Freddy's dead. And if if this movie had come out just a few short years later, you would put this in in when if it came out later and it was filmed a little bit differently and you change a couple things here and there, this would Kid. be considered this or hit a few things. Yes, <laughs> this would be considered elevated horror. It's ahead of its time. Can we just be really clear? It absolutely yeah. is so far ahead of its time. Wes Craven, shock horror, was ahead of his time. Everything, yeah. not everything, Wes Craven touched turned to gold. He certainly had his misfires as well. But Deadly friend. Yeah, for example. <laughs> We've covered it. For example. <laughs> but in terms of what horrified people, he seemed to be so far ahead of the game or cleverer about it than any yep. filmmaker working through the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s that I can think of. I think if there's a detriment to this film, it's the ideas, the, the, the filmmaking is spot on for a movie in 1994, okay? Especially a movie that's only got an $8 million budget. Yep. The ideas are from, like, 2014. Yep. And that doesn't mesh well because 
you're in at least I my experience of it is I'm engrossed in the idea of this movie, but some of the execution is outdated and outmoded for how forward thinking the ideas, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. And I think it probably explains where we might differ on it because I'm penalizing the film more for that dichotomy than perhaps you are. I don't think it's the fault of the movie. I don't think it's the result of bad filmmaking. I think it's what you just said. I think it's Wes Craven tapping into and being so far ahead of the game and being quite frankly, so far ahead of what, where Hollywood would want to even go or touch or anything. I think if you if if he were still with us, given some time and a budget, especially assuming like say Scream never happened, mm -hmm. and this this movie comes out, even in the early two thousands, let's say this thing even comes out, it'd have to be probably past twenty ten, I think, where film audiences are way more savvy, they're way more sophisticated, and people like you and I exist because there's way more of a market for talking about deconstructively yep. about film and entertainment and ideas after that's podcast fans, started <laughs> yeah that's what fans care about now as yep. much as if not more than the stories and the, the plots of the films themselves it's all the behind the scenes and the ideas and the themes and the, the subtext gossip and, and the... drama and subtext and yeah this movie would play like fucking gangbusters like if you would put this in there like uh, of like a babadook sort of run mm -hmm. like a, a lower budget mid-budget horror movie that's mostly about ideas. Cerebral. It's, it's honestly, yeah, cerebral. Because that's the kind of filmmaker he was. Mm -hmm. It's just he, he had to play in the pool of exploitation films because that's what was getting made. Yep. And this movie is not exploitation. It leans way more on the cerebral, but it's but then it has, it has to divert into mid-'90s horror elements, and that's a very fallow period for horror. Um, yeah, and terrible it's, it's, for the large part. It's kind of honestly, it's kind of unfair for to to Wes because I think the script here is good. I think the ideas here are good. I think this is a good movie. I, I'm, I'm I just think this is a good movie that's hampered by the era in which it was made. I agree, it's a good film. I think it's particularly strong in terms of its concept and some of the clever metaness that comes into play, particularly towards the end of the film, which yeah. really makes you think, like, okay, hang on, how does this work? And in a way that yep. no other nightmare film has because every time you're asking how does this work it's because you're consternated in this sense of or outrage like how fucking dumb is this not in this movie at yeah. all this film you're like oh how, wait does that mean he's writing this and if he hadn't written it it wouldn't have gone this way i think that's really fun to sort of play with and you can is he writing it or is he channeling it that's right and if he's yeah. channeling it who's from where from where right exactly right so all that and stuff's really interesting it does him writing it contain the evil like we can't stop the evil but if I make a movie about it, I can at least contain whatever right. this. But what if, what if a the evil is Lovecraft shit? Yeah. What if the evil is what's, you know, this is how I get into the world. I've convinced you of this, of course, the fact that he writes the evil's death and then that's how it happens doesn't support that theory. But for a long time yes. in the film, I was going, ooh, what if that was the big final twist? Like, yeah, actually, this is how I did break out. But that's the thing is that's how he's, that's exactly how they're, they're, they're playing in those ideas. That's not mm -hmm. just like, oh, well, Paul's overthinking it. No, that's like they're playing with that idea of because Russ Craven at one point as himself, and he's not a good actor, <laughs> but at one point he's like, when they when they stopped making Freddy movies, when there was no more film left for this thing, it's not actually Freddy. 
right? There is no Freddy. Not in this film, no. No, Freddy's just the skin whatever this thing is is wearing. And it's adopted certain attributes of Freddy, but it is not Freddy Krueger. And when they stopped making Freddy movies, this evil uh, had, had somehow become attracted to our, the audience's, fascination with this character. Yep. yep. So it's an indictment against us because it's like, you fucking, like, that's the whole. You bloodthirsty like, freaks. Yes. Like, that's the whole, like, when, when Robert England is movie Freddy, right? And he shows up at the talk show. Yep. And, <laughs> like, he, yeah, and he's doing the shtick from, Welcome to prime time, bitch. And he's doing the shtick. And you see, like, children He's with right. Freddy merchandise. <laughs> That's an indictment of mm -hmm. everything that we've been talking about. That's Wes Craven going, I never made this character to be the hero. You took this evil character and sold him to children. Right. Yep. As you said. He's a pedophile. <laughs> right? You fucking That's monsters. Wes Right. That's that's Wes Craven, which is amazing because the studio, they're playing themselves in the movie yep. where Wes Craven's going, New Line's the fucking monster. Mm -hmm. The parents are fucking monsters, not the kids. The people who, who turn this into a fucking pop culture circus, they're the fucking monsters. Yep. And that has given this, this evil, true evil, a face to wear, and it just so happens to be Freddy. And that that works so well of, like, once they killed him, they were, like, he didn't want to stop being Freddy. He liked that so much that now he's coming into our world as Freddy. That's fucking scary. And I think it's, it is. It's such a great reworking of this, what was already originally a yes. fantastically scary idea. And then the, the guy himself who created, originated idea, then doubled downs on it, basically, and <laughs> yeah. says, ah, you think that's scary? Fuck that. How about this? Right. Yeah. Well, here's, like, the crazy thing about it, right, is he, this is, this is so fucking weird, but it's true. He wrote a script about all of this is happening and, like, the portents of Freddy coming into our world were going to be earthquakes. So when they go to film the movie... It's one of the largest, as they're filming it, wow. one of the largest <laughs> earthquakes in L.A. history happens as they're shooting. That would scare the shit out of you just a little bit. So it's in the fuck, this meta movie about how Wes Craven's scripts are breaking into the real world. Something he wrote into the script of the movie you're working on has now happened in the real world. And all of that B-roll footage and all of that of them looking at the devastation of earthquakes and stuff like that, they went out and just shot the real earth, the wow. real after effects of the real L.A. earthquake. That's all real. And it adds another weird layer, layer of meta yeah. to this. Yeah, and that they're, idea. They're, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. That idea go that ahead. you can create something out of nothing and give it power in that creation, make people believe in it, and that will bring it to life is not just something that I think is really genuinely frightening. It's an idea I played around with in my writing, particularly when I was young, uh, that you, know, you can create a demon if you, if you get others to believe in it enough. It's kind of like creating a religion. Enough people yes. believe the same thing, it's now a religion. Right, and in, in a certain sense, it's now real. Yeah. Because enough people are giving their life and their energy and their belief to it 
it's animating something. It creates a eminence. It creates a tangible experience. It creates something that if you gather people in a room, I mean, that's what movies do, right? And and the brilliance of saying, well, movies are the real dreams, (laughs) right? Like when you go into a movie theater, it's almost as if you're going to sleep. We're we're just doing the dreaming for you because we make it dark. You lay back. And then the images just start fluttering across your eyes. That's what happens in REM sleep. And so for him to be like, yeah, the next iter- recapitulation of sleep is media, right? Like you've, society's gone asleep. Right. And you've embraced yeah. these nightmares. The whole point was you were never supposed to embrace this. You were supposed to be repulsed by this. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah. Right? And that's kind of the edge that this movie has. Is like, And it's it works through Heather Langenkamp, who I think isn't great in this, but is pretty good because she's like, she's like, what is wrong with you people? What is the, the, the whole, the, here's the stalker element. That was taken from her real life. She had a real life stalker. Right, okay. And all of the, the stuff that that guy was doing was hap- had happened to her oh, when she was uh, after the Nightmare movies. I mean, she was on a really bad sitcom called Just the Ten of Us. She had a stalker, and he would send her notes. And, like, so Craven fucking put that into the movie. Imagine being her and having to relive Act a real that. trauma. Yeah. Yep. And her husband is a real-life special effects guy who works right. on movies. Wow. So... Everything in this movie, like uh, uh, our boy Robert England is a painter in real life. Like he's doing all that. of the names, yep. the places, the, the all of it was their real life at that time. Robert Shea gets to actually play himself. <laughs> <laughs> he's terrible. He's so bad. That scene is so hilarious. Uh, Come on, look, Nancy. Kids love Freddy. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. I the look the other part of the film and the reason why it drops to where it does for me and I think it isn't clearly as big a deal for you is I thought the kid in this film. It's he's just overly relied on, and unfortunately, he's just not up to it. He's just not. So the technical side of film, his acting, he just sucks the life out of just about every scene. He's just given too much to do, and I reckon having that's true. Cut yeah. down his bits, given more back to Heather, maybe introduced a couple of minor characters who could have died, like that nanny and the way that she dies. She's in one scene at the start of the movie. I think she bobs her head up at one other bit, and then appears at the end and sacrifices herself for this. And I'm like, that doesn't play at all. You haven't given her, enough time to her. That's that's the problem there, right, is I think the death, which is obviously harkening back to Tina. The, yes, to Tina, exactly. Yep. I the, the There's something about when he has her and then he comes towards the camera, which is supposed to be Dylan's perspective, and he says, hey, Dylan. And what's something they do with his voice, too. Do you ever play Skin the Cat? And it's like, <laughs> that's not a pun right that's a menacing threatening sadistic sense of humor but it's not a fucking pun that harkens back to the freddy from the original film but even then not only is the makeup which i think has is if it had been in low light it would have been a little bit better Mm. making him hulking because he's not short here he's tall and I think I think the trench coat fucking works. I think the leather pants don't work, but I think the trench the trench coat works. I think Le- making, leather pants rarely work, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were trying to going for more of like the muted colors of his garb, like the reinvention of Freddie. I don't think it's perfect, 
but I think it works enough to be like, this isn't the same one. This isn't yep. your funny Uncle Freddy. And when he appears, when he appears in that closet and he goes, miss me. And like what Robert England does here is different than what we've seen him do. probably since the original and even different than that. And I think it's a highly effective performance. Yeah. I, I think when he him. comes up out of that fucking bed, when he comes up out of that kid's bed and under the sheet and then cuts his way out, mm -hmm. It's disturbing. Like, it, like I, what I would say is, it, it gets as close to being scary again as any of these movies. Yeah, since that's the not original. Mephew. And that's proof positive then of the collaboration between an actor and a director, right? Because this yep. is the scariest he's been since the guy that he worked with on the first one. Right? That's yep. not an accident. That's Wes Craven giving him those notes. Robert, nah, er bring it back. We, this is a completely different character. Here's what you need to do. And Robert Eglin works on it himself, and the two of them work yep. in collaboration. Strip away. All of the shit that's been added on to the character. Mm -hmm. This isn't Freddy. This is some kind of demon. Uh, I think the it's not as good as the Tina death, but I think that that is a harrowing death because you have this small child who is watching. witnessing, yeah. watching it, and he's playing with this kid's nanny like a cat playing with a mouse and then just fucking slashes her open and just doesn't care. I think, unfortunately, some of the digital effects... Uh, have not aged well at all. No, that I bit where the kid's being plucked off the freeway and, and it's the like. terrible. Yeah, it's not good. The Freddy morphing into the demon form where it, it's like digital but also looks like a stop-motion puppet is Doesn't really either. bad. It's very bad. Um, there's some other stuff I don't think that has aged all that well. Uh, I think that unfortunately hurts this movie. Yeah, so. I think the final battle is also very anticlimactic. I think if you almost... That moment when the, the babysitter or the dies, that's the last really genuinely great moment in the film for me. And then, yes. then we're going through the motions after that to get to the end, to get to the final battle for, for Dylan to be chased all around and, and then Heather obviously to save him. They don't kill either of them off. They're never going to kill the kid, of course, but Heather doesn't have to yeah. die in this one. They let her live, which is kind of nice. Um, yeah, I think the, the end of the film is where it drags there's one more. There's one more good moment. Oh, please, yep. And it's after after all the bullshit at the hospital, it's when John Saxon reappears as John Saxon. Yep. And then it's just a very subtle transition. It's it, it it if you don't know to look for it, you don't start noticing it because it doesn't just happen in one shot. It transitions slowly around her. As if he's now her dad in yeah. Yeah. And he's like, Why are you calling me? It flips from why are you calling me whatever, uh, Heather, to why are you calling me John, Nancy? And he's yep. like, she's like, why are you calling me Nancy, John? And he's, <laughs> and he's like, this is your mother, like this, you know, whatever, like get some sleep. You know, you and that kid of yours just need to get some sleep. And he gets into a fucking cop car and he's the cop from Nightmare One again. And she's in the pajamas. The, the, the camera pans back to her and she's now fully in the world of the movie. And the house is the Elm, her Elm Street yep. house. And she's in the pajamas, same pajamas she wore 10 years previous. That's effective. Yeah, that was good. And then everything right. past that is right. We feel like we're just kind of going through the motions. Yeah, so I think it's the, the concept that elevates this film. I think the execution of it's good through the first two thirds. Killing the, the father off so early, the, the husband off, that was a genuine yeah. surprise to me. Big tick. I spent 60 minutes of the film wondering whether those two special effects guys had died in the opening scene. Turns out they had. Um, yeah. I like that moment too that sort of holding back that reveal but it's definitely that more cerebral film it's not 
and I guess by this stage, your bloodlust, my bloodlust is kind of up in a way. Like the last one was so terrible. The death was so shit. Give me something to, <laughs> to really cling on to here. But it has gone yeah. in such a different direction. I think I wasn't, it's only the second time I ever watched this movie. I watched it once at the theaters when it came out. Mm. Thought it was fun. Thought it was clever. Even in my pre-podcasting, reviewing films critically kind of days. So to come back to this and think, oh, it was so good till two thirds of the way in and drops the ball so significantly in that last act. It kind of, Seems like it felt like it ran out of energy, it ran out of ideas, or Wes Craven did, and it just goes through those motions. That's what let it down for me. I think they do such a good job of building Freddy up or this thing as yep. Freddy up as a ominous threat <clears throat> that we then got to the point where how do you defeat something that big? Mm-hmm. And I don't think they knew how to bring a conclusion to it because it just yep. ends up they just put him in an oven and set him on fire, and it's like that, that's it. That's going to somehow do it. So I think that was the biggest problem was he didn't know how to end the story. So that's what you feel. So, but for me, it was a toss up, honestly, because I found the movie to be, like you said, two thirds of the way through, pretty engrossing. And um, it, a more mature, again, now we'd call it elevated horror. There, there was no framework for this type of movie, not just from the meta elements, but from like a serious horror movie. Like, we, they, like they, did made, they made that sort of stuff in the 70s, but. They weren't making that much horror in the '90s, and the stuff they were was always shit. So, <laughs> this this was this had almost no chance of being successful, and it wasn't unfortunately. Uh, but it was a toss up between this and the original as Ooh. what I liked more. So this is going to be my number two, and I, I give it a seven point nine out of ten. Wow. I uh, thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this film. I think I think there's so much. I think what is here is so rich that it, it uh, overcomes limitations of the era in which it was made and a conclusion which West didn't have. Well, for me, it's not quite so high. I gave it a 6.2 out of 10. Uh, two-thirds of the film really good. The last third is not. Uh, but the concept is excellent, as we've discussed, and you have summarized so eloquently. Uh, it's the third of the week for me. Still a good film. I still think these are the three that particularly hold up i have a soft spot for number four i'm sorry that's the only one we've really disagreed on today probably a bit of a letdown <laughs> for the uh binge lords that we haven't argued more, more animatedly uh, i'm sure that will happen next time around i'm sure jason <laughs> will find something i'm gonna hate that he loves and he'll just give me a bunch of old films to watch and then here we go bring me the jewel you're not allowed to touch my jewels anymore kate do you want to frisk me give me all your money <laughs> yes the legend continues because they're back it's Muggers, Zero, and Ghoulies 4. Have I got a treat for you. A satanic story with something for everyone. Like what? Drugs, weird sex, ritualistic stuff, black magic, devil worship. It's time for a recap. Coming in dead last for me was Freddy's Dead, 1 out of 10. It is a terrible film. Come in at number six, The Dream Child, which I give a three out of ten. Coming in at number five is The Dream Master, which is a 3.5 out of ten. I'm sorry, Paul. I just didn't find the same level of enjoyment. Coming in in the kind of middle-ish of the pack this week is Freddy's Revenge, which I gave a 4.25 out of ten. <laughs> Coming in at number three is the third in the series. Uh, send your hate mail to bingemovies at gmail.com. I gave that film a six out of ten. <laughs> Coming at number two is Wes Craven's New Nightmare, 
7.9 out of 10. And my number one, the best of the week, and the first entry onto the shortlist for this season, A Nightmare on Elm Street. I have tweeted this. I have said this. I believe this. I think that any canon of film, including the no copyright infringement intended vault, should be open to any and all genre exploitation or yes. B-movies because they are part of film history and cinema culture. So I hope A Nightmare on Elm Street stands a chance this season. Paul, what's your recap? Right, well, I 100% agree with you. The worst of the week is by far Freddy's Dead, 0.3 out of 10, and an active nomination for the anti-vault, so it should never be spoken of and struck from all records previous <laughs> beyond the times of all the end times, moving forwards and backwards across all multiverses. <laughs> this uh, guy listens. <laughs> <laughs> number, number six is uh, the dream chart. Oh, no, sorry, Freddy's Dead. Sorry, Freddy's, I'll go that again. Freddy's Revenge is my worst, second worst of the week. <laughs> 2.2 2 out of together. 10. Hate that fucking film. 2.5 out of 10 for The Dream Child. Also a massive piece of shit. But then then we get the jump for me. Uh, my fourth of the week was uh, The Dream Master, which I don't understand Jason's abject hatred for, uh, other than the fact it, it does some, some things early on that probably don't make <laughs> a lot of sense. Uh, 6.2 out of 10 is where I'm going to give Freddy, sorry, what's New Nightmare, my fifth best of the week, or third of the week, sorry, fifth worst of the week. <laughs> is that the way it works? <laughs> <laughs> my second best of the week let's just go you back to used that. to be so good at this what happened to the rankings Paul I've got, You're got the numbers right this time I've got the numbers right <laughs> yeah, this time yeah. I've improved on Halloween obviously I can yeah. you know, 7 plus or minus 2 apparently I'm minus 2 <laughs> um, in terms of working memory uh, 7.5 out of 10 will of course go to the original which is very very good film and is so close I totally understand why it's your nomination and just for shits and giggles therefore I will give 7.7 .7 to Dream Warriors as my oh. number one of the week, and I'm going to nominate it for the guest to, or whoever's going to have to knock something out when we get to the end of the season. Wow. Okay, the first entry on the guest list is Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Warriors. Don't want to dream no more. Thank God someone Are you nominating Dawkins as well? <laughs> Uh, why we have both famously said before that Dream Warriors was the Inception for Inception. It's the same movie. Uh, what there is you your recommendation of the week? My recommendation of the week, despite what I just said there, is going to be the original. You can't go past the original in terms of being something which is both classic cinema, ahead of its time, genuinely creepy, if not frightening, depending on your sensibilities in certain scenes. But yeah, it still just falls short of Dream Warriors for me. Not to be a Julio from Contrarians, but I'm going to be a contrarian. <laughs> My recommendation is Wes Craven's New Nightmare because I think it's the most underseen, underappreciated of the franchise. And I think if you are a cinephile, and let's be honest, if you're listening to a show that's gone on for three hours <laughs> about a nightmare in Elm Street, you're a hardcore cinephile. Um, if, if that's who you are and you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while, put this into its context understand its strengths and its weaknesses like we elucidated here on this podcast and i think there's a lot to enjoy there so uh i guess in conclusion what is your summary experience of your revisit to the nightmare franchise is it a good franchise uh because it was in my mind before we did this it would have been nightmare on elm street then a friday friday the 13th then maybe hellraiser 
Because Hellraiser Oof. has so many terrible sequels. Oof, I don't know. Jeez. Then maybe Child's Play and then uh, Halloween, probably. Jeez, to my mind, it would be Friday 13th, <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Halloween, Child's Play, Hellraiser. Hellraiser's after the first three films are just so bad, deplorably bad. God forbid. <laughs> that's what yes, we're doing next year. <laughs> But but I'm prepared to be wrong because geez, Halloween was a this was a much easier uh, binge than Halloween series was. I enjoyed my time much much yeah. more as reflected in the scores that I provided. Other than the first Halloween, to my mind, being better than any of these nightmare films. There Absolutely, are, there yeah. are at least three films that are better than the second best Halloween film. <laughs> arguably four, even in my mind. So right, I enjoyed my time going back through. Other than with uh, the film, which will hopefully be struck from existence, and we'll never have to mention it again. Uh, and, and number five is also garbage. The second one, which I'd watched recently for a rewatch for our show, for the patrons, uh, mm-hmm. I knew what to expect. So it, it didn't hurt so much this time. Uh, but one, three, new nightmare and fuck it, Jason, Dream Master are all worthy of your time <laughs> and therefore worth a look. The lows are way oh. lower than I remember them, uh, but I will always have a soft, soft spot for the franchise, so I am glad I got a chance to revisit it and cover it on the show. So it, it's, I'm glad I got to do it with you too, my well, friend. I was about to say, so. and long story short, no matter how terrible even what the fuck films might be or whatever else, <laughs> it is always a grand time. always have an absolute blast talking these films with you, Jason, and today has been no exception. And I know we didn't argue as hard as we sometimes do. I'm sure <laughs> that day is coming again. On our next episode, we'll be ranking classic Disney films. Talk about a change of pace. Starting with 1937's Snow White, 1940's Pinocchio, 1940's Fantasia, 1941's Dumbo, and 1942's Bambi. (laughs) Don't say we're not willing to cover it all. We cover the full (laughs) horizon of cinema on this show. All right, Paul, our people know you. They love you. Before you go, tell them where they can find you. And, uh, uh, yeah, what, what, what do you got going on in the world of the countdown? The usual, an argument with Wayne, my best mate, each week about a particular list of shows, which he usually misses the brief on, and then a review of, generally speaking, a brand new release to, to complement that. And you can find all that stuff just by searching the countdown movie and TV reviews. Uh, but you're already here, and if you go at it to the almost three-hour mark, what I'm sure will be of this particular episode, <laughs> then you already know how amazing Jason is as a podcast, and what he's bringing to the game is different than anybody else, and it's an absolute pleasure to hopefully continue getting invite back season after season and, and contribute, and we're going to have Jason back to see if we can challenge the runtime on our show in the very <laughs> near future. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm more than up for it. I'm up for the challenge, obviously. Awesome. Um, let, let me just say this. If you are a listener of Binge Movies and you have not yet subscribed to the countdown please do so they're they're like a australian cousin show to binge <laughs> movies so you know subscribe there Beyond leave them a five-star review if you're coming over from the countdown and you only show up when paul's here nah, and stay you around subscribe to binge movies absolutely stay the fuck around subscribe throw us a five-star review uh, uh, uh yeah the australia has been uh, from where this show started with australia to where we are now with your country and your continent is night and day from Paul, uh, from Pat, RIP, derisively <laughs> talking about the entire continent of people, which created much fervor <laughs> and controversy, to now us uh, frequently being the top of the charts for, in that country. 
uh, is a miracle. It only took Pat's death, but here we are. <laughs> Small sacrifice, but worth yeah. it. <laughs> he absolved, yeah, that absolved the sins. <laughs> it's like when Bart came to Australia in The Simpsons, we had to give him the boot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all it took was us burying Pat on hollowed ground and sprinkling his bones with, uh, with holy oil. Please keep your, your fire-pissing dogs away from that area of the world. Don't bring any fire pissing dogs to Akron, Ohio. And don't you dare piss on the grave of my best dearly departed mate, Pat. R.I.P. <laughs> All right. Until next time, binge lords, when I torture Paul again in Woo! the near future, binge on. <laughs>